Ricci. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 326. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the APG headquarters studio in a northern Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on the 31st of May, 2018. In today's episode, Piper Malibu forced landing on a highway in Arizona due to fuel starvation. A 737 freighter drops reverser during landing. More bad passenger behavior. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, Bricksmiths. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 326 is ready for pushing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we strive for an accuracy rating of at least 50%. And I am a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today to help me in this endeavor doctor? is doctor? Doctor? a doctor, doctor? skydiver, doctor? marathon runner, strength doctor? training junkie, doctor? IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. I am so glad to be back with you guys this week. I did miss you guys last week, but it was an excellent show. So I'm um, looking forward to joining you all again today, working towards that 50% accuracy accuracy rating, and hopefully not being too distracted by uh, your duplicate image over Captain Nick's uh, there. <laughs> oh, and now myself. But we'll see that in just a minute, I think. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll have to explain that here in just a second, but uh, let's, uh, without further ado, welcome the next contestant on the APG show, this man in his new recording studio outside of London, professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hey, cheers, Jeff, and uh, hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to... The new uh, studio. I'm loving it here. It's great. You're going to have to tell us a little bit more about that here in a second. But before you do, let's introduce the third contestant, or fourth, I guess, in today's show. From Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding, pontoon boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Hey, everybody. Great to be back, and uh, boy, it's still weird getting used to hearing that Captain Dana. So uh, looking forward to another great show. Be fun today. And uh, I don't know, Nick, I, I can't see having that behind your head the whole time. <laughs> You'll get used to it. I don't know about <laughs> that. People are wondering, what is what are they talking about? What's behind Captain Nick's head? Okay, so we've kind of alluded to the fact that uh, Nick is in a new home recording studio and uh, he has a beautiful big screen TV on the wall kind of perpendicular to his recording 
position, and we can see it based on the, the angle of the camera. So you're going to have to, if you're listening to the audio podcast, uh, to head over to our YouTube channel. Uh, that's uh, Airline Pilot Guy, all one word, the YouTube channel, and then you'll see what we're talking about. And it is a bit distracting when <laughs> Nick's video is on because we see the other video right behind him. So, But again, I think we'll we'll get used to it. I don't think I'll do this every week. I just happen to have one of those uh, tellies that I can pull out from the wall. It's actually the old one. We've got a new one next door, so the old one uh, goes in my den. And I thought, since it, uh, I didn't have a space to stand it, I'd bolt it to the wall, and you can actually move it away from the wall, which is what I've done. So, anyway, uh, welcome to the new studio. It's taken me three years to build this. Uh, Probably actually is two years and 11 months of messing about not doing anything and one month of actually building it. So it took you (laughs) two years and 11 months longer to build it than it should have. Yeah, yeah. But like I said to my lovely wife, you know, you don't have to tell me every six months to get around to doing things, you know. Yes, yes. They'll happen. And it has. Eventually. Yeah, I know. What is that? You know, I get that all the time, too. I'll get to it eventually. May not be on your time schedule. <laughs> it's uh, it's not entirely a, a sound studio, so uh, there's no furnishings in it at the moment uh, for sound. So it might be a trifle echoey, um, but it's uh, mainly a photographic studio. So I've got plenty of room behind me to set up all my photographic gear, lots of PowerPoints organized, lots of storage, nice cabinets to put cameras and stuff. Um, but um, it also has got a great workspace here for me and one just across the room there for my lovely wife. So we can use it in an office. And previously this room was, I don't know, it was originally a dining room, I guess. Uh, but most of the time it just held uh, sports equipment that I never used and a heap of junk. Uh, and uh, now we use it and we have got a beautiful view through a big uh, panoramic window out of the garden. So it's uh, it, we turn it into something that hopefully we'll, we'll spend more time in. Now be honest with me, um, having that space in there for your lovely wife, uh, was that part of the deal to uh, to get this to happen? Uh, no, it wasn't actually. It was actually my idea. I, I, there's a redundant corner over there where a secretary could work. So I thought, well, why not get? Oh, he delegated her to the redundant <laughs> corner. Oh. Yeah, she doesn't so watch the show, does she? Of you, Nick. Uh, listen to it. That. And I, I put sort of matching desks, except mine goes up and down. Jilly uh, isn't tech enough to work the buttons that make desks go up and down. So hers just sits still. You're just digging yourself a big hole. Yeah, I hope that going, she's not listening going. to this. I'm going to make sure she listens to okay. this. <laughs> I'm going to pay him a compliment, actually. What's that, at, like? least he's, at least he's putting his good time off to good use. Ah, very true. Right. Yes. Yes. It, you, you're utilizing the time wisely versus uh, sitting around like a uh, lump on a log on a couch. There you eating go. Popsicle and, and eating bonbons. And if I can just swing the camera just a little bit, and I know this only for those of you who are watching. It kind of looks like a psychotherapist's room. There you go. It is a little bit. How would you know? Because <laughs> nice my father was one, that's why. Oh, that's right. Uh-huh. More yeah. importantly, in the corner over there is uh, my drinks cabinet now, which uh, wow. is looking pretty full, actually. Rather nice. Is there a refrigerator in there somewhere? No, no. For that, I'll have to run outside. Uh, no, it's got all my, uh, my whiskies and... Uh, bourbons and bits and bobs like that yeah well don't worry uh july's coming soon nick 
Ah, uh, yes, I know. You can help me. Alcohol. You can help me drink that awful wild turkey I've got. Oh, man. Oh, no, thank you. We'll pass on it. I, I, I do have a question. You said two hour, two years and 11 months in the making here. So that means that when we were out there at Farnborough a couple of years ago, this was actually started. I, I didn't remember I hearing think the it. idea had been hatched. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I don't remember I do you showing you me this. Because I think there were other renovations going on at the time because of. Yeah. yeah. It just it took a while to actually. Well, when we had it in our head, and, and my wife said, look, you need to, uh, you know, organize a studio and we'll use that room. It's just, it's taken us an awful long time to uh, okay. physically I'll do take it. Take your word for it. There you go. Okay. Well, speaking, you might as well talk about Farnborough, right? Ah. Because we are planning. Uh, first, I should start with uh, um, an error that I made in the last show. And it was a, a big human error on my part. I mentioned uh, my jury summons for July. Uh, thankfully, good news is that uh, I screwed up. I, I don't know how I ended up getting the old last year's 2017, July 17th jury summons together with the other jury summons it just well you were just organized uh, I, you have all your jury summons in a pile and i think oh. the problem is i'm not organized and i just saw it laying on the floor somewhere and i thought oh there it is <laughs> i went oh july i got another one <laughs> that was 2017 and uh so that's good news that means that it's not going to interrupt or interfere with my plan on heading over to the uk and maybe catching a glimpse of Riyadh and then um, be there for the week of Farnborough and uh, the weekend, the public air show. And then uh, if if the uh, Andersons can put up with me for that long, I hope. Hello? I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's go on. Oh, anybody had, out there? I think it's what we call oh, a pregnant pause. A very pregnant pause. <laughs> now, I, my uh, normal um, mic mute uh, has failed on me, so uh -huh. I have to use the right. software one I keep forgetting. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, yes, of course, uh, we've found a spot for you in the basement. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wait a minute. Aren't you in the basement right now? No, we don't have a basement. Yeah, I was going to say there's no basement. <laughs> oh, Six feet okay. under. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a very uh, special you, place you, for me you, in we, the crawl we space. Refurbished the uh, the bathroom and the bedrooms. Of course, now now that I don't use one of them as an office, will all be available. Uh, and uh, you know, it, apart from the fact we have to tidy them up a bit, uh, you're going to be very very welcome. All right. Uh, I'm not going to say that. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I was going to say, do uh, do Steph and I get to sleep together again, uh, or is, or do we get separate rooms this time? I'm just kidding. That, that's a joke. Uh, I already got the text and stuff. It's it's me this time, Jeff. I didn't want to have to break that news on the air, but uh, there you have it. Okay. Well, it's an exciting place, this APG thing. <laughs> Uh, right. Uh, let's see. So we are, so Dana, you're going to make an attempt to uh, get over to, uh, jolly old England for the, uh, that'd be O L D E England. Yes, I am going to make an effort. Of course, I'm probably going to be in reserve, but it looks like unless something major happens, uh, our reserve coverage is sufficient as, let me say that again, sufficient enough that I may indeed be able to drop some time to be able to join the crew over there. So we'll see. 
Excellent. Yes, I've noticed that uh, things have really changed on the uh, on the Mad Dog in Atlanta that uh, Dana and I are captains on, and even for us senior folk, uh, it's getting uh, slim pickings for picking up trips. And uh, may I tell you about a trip that I picked up um, earlier this week on Tuesday? You may. You may. Thank you. Um, so it was a it was an. No, it's very good to hear about Jeff. Thanks. That's perfect. <laughs> Did I black out again? <laughs> wow. Excellent, excellent trip. And I'm not Here even drinking. <laughs> Neither am I. I'm drinking water with lemon. Okay. Uh, so I've not done this before, um, but although I've been on, um, well, this is my, will be my third fleet or airplane that I've flown that is in the, has either been uh, retired or is in the process of retirement. And uh, we've talked about it before on the show. The airplane that Dana and I are flying is at the beginning stages of uh, the retirement of the fleet. And I never got a chance to do it on the other two fleets, the L-1011 and the 727. But I just happened to be looking at the uh, open time, trying to pick up some some trips, because that's how we get paid, at least uh the airline that uh, Dana and I fly for. Um, and so we're not salary uh, employees where we get paid by the hour. And so if you don't fly flights, then, you know, your your paycheck for that particular month is going to be a little bit uh, slim. So I was looking at the open time and I saw this trip in there and it was a one day trip worth like eight and a half hours. And I thought, well, I wonder what this thing is. So I take a look at it and it says Atlanta to SB. D. No, S. Yeah, SBD. San Bernardino. Yeah. KSBD, which is San Bernardino International Airport. It used to be um, Norton Air Force Base. So I have flown into that airport, although at the time it was an Air Force Base. Now it's not. I think back in the uh, late 80s or 90s, uh, the uh, we, we closed a whole bunch of Air Force bases. And I think that got shut down sometime around that time frame. Anywho, uh, and then it showed ground transportation between San Bernardino and uh, Los Angeles International, and then um, a flight home, a deadhead flight from LAX to ATL. Long day. Uh, got out. It was a really long day for me because my daughter uh, rode with me to the airport. She is up in Boston, Boston, um, Andover to be exact, uh, visiting visiting her boyfriend. And uh, so I said, you know, I'll, I'll leave a little bit early and uh, best shot you have to get up there would be to try to catch that first flight uh, to Boston. Turns out she didn't get that flight. We had to make her go through uh, uh, LaGuardia and then take the uh, shuttle to Boston. But she got there before noon. Um, so left the house at about 430 in the morning and uh, our flight from Atlanta to San Bernardino uh, left at eight o'clock and the airplane that was retired was November 926 Delta Lima. And this particular airplane, as far as we can tell, was not involved in any major incident or mishap in its lifetime. It was born on the 15th of September 1988. And uh, that was about three months, exactly three months before I was hired at Acme Airlines in uh, December of 1988. Uh, the uh, airplane, she ha- ended up with 77,006 hours and 13 minutes. And the last four hours and 19 minutes of that 
were uh, logged by myself, and I logged a bunch of other time on that airplane. I'm sure uh, Dana has as well, uh, ship number 926. And it had 58,092 cycles on it before I stepped on for the last flight. And uh, it ended up uh, the last cycle uh, flown by me to uh, uh, 58,093. So it uh, had a great life, uh, almost 30 years of uh, flying exclusively for Acme Airlines and uh, a long flight. A lot of people were making uh, that were following me that day uh, were kind of making fun of the fact that, uh, you know, I don't normally fly a four hour and 19 minute flight and they're right. Um, and uh, but it was uh, it wasn't bad. It was reasonably good weather. We flew around the north end of Albert, uh, the uh, tropical subtropical storm that uh, went through uh, Alabama, and uh, so we just had to deviate a little bit uh, once we left Atlanta. And then from then on, it was a a nice flight, mostly clear by the time we got to, I don't know, Texas and uh, to to the West Coast. And uh, anyway, it was kind of a bittersweet experience. Uh, It was an honor to be able to fly the uh, airplane to its final resting place, a lot of other airplanes. Uh, by the way, at San Bernardino International. In fact, I saw um, a an Acme Red uh, A340-600 there in, you know, it didn't have any engines on it and looked like big pieces. It looked like a lot of the airplanes had their rudders completely gone. I don't know why. Oh, don't worry, Jeff. Uh, They'll soon have that back in the air again. Well, the rate the bin liners are going down. They, they might, actually. Uh, there were a bunch of 747s and uh, even saw some... Uh, some narrow body Airbuses for for Acme there, and uh, so it's just kind of a sad thing when you when you see it. It's kind of like, oh, this is it's you know like the what they say the boneyard. It's just uh, it's depressing. What's the matter, Dana? It's the graveyard. Yeah, the graveyard. And um, I was hoping that maybe some of these were be, just being you know put in long term storage and. That they get to see, you know, get to fly again sometime at some point. And I guess some of them are kind of set up that way, but uh, a lot of them you could tell. I mean, there were some old airplanes there, seven twenty sevens and stuff uh, that uh, were uh, were the carcasses were lying about. So anyway, it was How an many interesting fueling experience. Stops? Was it three, four fueling? No, stops? one. We had we put uh, we we filled it up to the brim, Dana, and landed with uh, about. I don't know about thirteen thousand pounds, something like that. Um, wow. And uh, didn't we, have any we didn't get passengers or cargo or anything on the plane. Nope, no passengers, uh, no cargo, um, and uh, no flight attendants. It was just uh, the co-pilot and I. And, uh, and and the other interesting thing is, normally when I do these maintenance ferry flights and that kind of, I, you know, we have the option. Uh, Dana knows this that we we don't necessarily have to wear our uniforms. And uh, I decided uh, that I would not wear my uniform this time. And that was kind of weird. You know, just kind of felt like you were in the sim wearing the stuff that you'd wear in the simulator period. But um, the the nice thing about that. What? I was going to ask you. So was that landing like the videotape landing we saw of your last landing? Um, Oh, it was uh, it was a lot worse because, you know, Dana, I mean, every landing that I do is just horrible. So, um, especially was, uh, an empty airplane that I was just trying that, to help them up, but I was just trying to help them out. Um, you know, cause yeah, they're, like, they're piece parting these things anyway, dismantling this plane again. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, uh, Lucinda. I think the part, 
pieces of the tail, I think, fell off on the runway. But I'm, again, I was just trying to help everybody. Make sure it doesn't go anywhere else. Yes. No, it was a very nice landing. Thank you very much. You treat it and with respect, Jeff. I did. I did. And uh, um, anyway, as I said, bittersweet. Sorry to see her go. Never thought I would ever say that uh, about a mad dog. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, that that was my my experience this week. I go back out again on uh, tomorrow. Uh, do a a two day, and um, and then back out again Monday through Thursday next week. Oh, by the way, let me just quickly mention that Landon um, noticed that I was going to be in Dallas on Monday. And uh, so if you're in the Dallas area and you're interested in meeting up with Landon and I, um, we're tentatively, I haven't seen a response from him yet, but I thought uh, barbecue would sound pretty nice to me, at least right right now it does. And so I think we're going to try to meet up at Lockhart um, Smokehouse, I think that's called. And it's in the Bishop something arts district or something like that. And uh, I'll put out a tweet and a Facebook post to let you know what we're, you know, planning on, where we're planning on being and what time. It'll probably be kind of early, maybe around five o'clock. And uh, again, that's uh, this Monday uh, in Dallas, downtown. Nice. Yeah. Looking forward to that. And uh, as long as we're talking about meetups, the uh, innovations in flight uh, at the Udvar-Hazy Smithsonian Air and Space Museum is set for the June 16th weekend, Saturday, June 16th, and Sunday the 17th. And I plan on uh, being a co-pilot to uh, Mike Carroll's, the captain. Uh, he's the uh, host of that wonderful podcast, Flying and Life. And if the weather's good, we'll be flying his little musketeer up there. And so if you're in the... Uh, Dulles International Area, and uh, you are not doing anything else, and you want to kind of hang out with some uh, fellow APGers, we're going to be up there that weekend on, uh, again, June 16th, uh, probably getting in on Friday sometime, and then be there all day, this Saturday 16th, and then um, either leaving that night or the next day, because I think Mike's got to work a shift Sunday night, and Sunday's Father's Day as well, so it may be nice to be home. I'm not sure if any of my kids will be, but you know, it'll be nice to, to be home. And that's it yeah. for me. Wish I could make it to that. It's a fun event. I don't think I'm going to be able to, sadly. Aww. I know. Yeah. I thought I was going to be able to, and then I was reminded of other prior obligations, which I had oh, conveniently no. forgotten about. So it's probably a good okay. thing that I was we'll try to get out of them. <laughs> Um, that was, uh, what, three years ago, Steph, that uh, you and uh, yeah. Miami, Rick, and I yeah. uh, met up together, and we uh, we did the innovations in flight and um, met the Airplane Geeks mm -hmm. crew for the first time and uh, attended their uh, meetup, their get-together that they have on that Saturday evening at the Red Robin yep. restaurant. Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I definitely like to get up there again for it. Unfortunately, it just looks yeah. like it won't be this year, which is a shame oh, because well. of the Airplane Geeks 500th. Yeah, they're doing it. They've already had their they 500th already had the episode. Show, but they're doing, you know, kind of in conjunction. So, yeah, like their 10th, they're in their 10th year or, yes. or they're something like getting close or something. Yeah. So, pretty cool. Uh, a very monumental uh, benchmark in the uh, aviation podcasting 
world. In fact, they've got to be. If it's not the longest running aviation podcast out there, it certainly will be close. Uh, it may not it may not have been the first, but they're still going. I don't think any other aviation podcast has been going that long. Uh, so congratulations to the airplane geeks. Oh, absolutely. Good job, guys. Now, Steph. Yes. Please, please explain your absence. Um, you just didn't feel like doing the show last I week? I didn't is that feel it? like doing the show. No, I was out of town. I was pretty far out of town. And I know everyone wants to know, but to be honest, it was kind of just a little getaway trip for some headspace, some time by myself. And I do a lot of sharing of things on social media and here. And every once in a while, you just need one for yourself. So I'm going to keep it that way. Sorry for being mysterious, but there was just a lot of stuff going on at work, a lot of stuff, personal life stuff. And I just needed some time away to kind of refresh, recharge and happy to say mission accomplished to get to see some friends along the way. So that was that was a nice added bonus. I think we all completely understand, especially when you're kind of in the public eye uh, a lot. It's sometimes nice to just be incognito. Yeah, no, I mean, not even so much here, but just, you know, I realized I shared a lot of stuff on social media, Facebook, all that type of stuff. It's like, you know, it might be nice for once just to just to keep it for me and people who are close and I care about sharing some private stuff with. So, But I had a very nice time. I'm sorry I was not able to join you guys for, guys for the show. Excuse me. I do want to say a huge, huge, huge thank you to Main Man Micah for the lovely uh, piece that he sent in for my birthday. That was above and beyond nice, and I'm so thankful to him for that. It was very nice to hear, and I know he's in the chat room right now. So thank you, Micah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, but yeah, it was. It was kind of creepy. I thought. No, I'm just Mike kidding. Not creepy. <laughs> he I know. made he, such a big he, point he of did. me not being creepy. He's like, I'm not creepy by saying this. <laughs> I'm just kidding, main much. man, Micah. It was that. not creepy, and I don't care what other people not. think. I I know you. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that was that was very, very nice on his part, and I had a very nice birthday. Um, I think I'm officially closer to forty than thirty. <laughs> oh, so old. <laughs> Hey, I'm allowed to have my, my own, uh, you know. Yeah, I know. So, so you, are, you you did look like you're older. I know. No, I'm just kidding. I can tell. I can tell. So how old were you when I started flying the F-18? Six. Six. Yeah. We, we and, learned that uh, today. Yep. Yes. And Dana was graduating from high school yep. and experiencing other life. Unbelievable. <laughs> you, you, you mistook that. <laughs> Oh, did I? Oh, okay. It oh. went the way I wanted it to go, but that's not actually what that was about. I lost my virginity oh. in flying an airplane. Oh, thank you. Yes. Thank you. That's oh, the year that, that was, was going. my graduation gift to myself is that oh. I went for my first flight. <laughs> Jeff was about to just turn so many shades of red there. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to make a marker at this point would, in the show. That's what you thought I was talking about, and it's actually not what I was talking about at oh, all. Okay. I was well, talking about things when I was flying. You did write a big capital V. Uh, yes, and you did. I did. You did. Your and then you did not mention v. anything about flying after no, that. No, you didn't mention anything about no. it. I think you just changed I, I set you up. I set you up perfectly. Exactly. Okay. What I wanted you. Well done. Yeah, well played, I sense Dana. a little bit of backpedaling here, person. No, there's no backpedaling whatsoever because that date was much earlier. <laughs> okay, let's uh, move on, uh, Dana. Since you're already yapping, what have you been up to? Well, have you uh, you haven't you're still between IOEs here, right? I am indeed. Finished my IOE last week, which uh, 
we of course did the show last Thursday. Last Friday was a much more tame, enjoyable day, although the weather was crap. But uh, you know, other than that, it was uh, a, a, a very usual day. Um, the biggest challenge I'm having is to learn how to taxi that airplane really smoothly. Uh, you know, the 88 versus the 90, big difference in the way they taxi. Um, so other than that, and even even doing so, I'm, I'm doing a really good job with that. So looking forward to tomorrow. Uh, I start a four-day trip tomorrow. I do, uh, let's see, a Toronto round trip. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to get off the airplane long enough to say to our, hello to our lovely Liz up there. Um, but then I fly back to uh, KATL, Cattle as I like to call it, and then on down to um, – Fort Walton Beach for a nice 30, uh, it's just about 34-hour layover in Fort Walton Beach. Uh, my lovely bride is going to try and join me for the first time as me flying as a captain at a legacy carrier, which is going to be fun. It looks like the flights are holding good. And uh, I spoke to the Czech airman today. Seems like a, a nice fellow. Last guy I had was named Mark. This guy's name is Mark, so it makes it really easy for me to remember. And then, uh, then uh, on Monday I fly Fort Walton back. To, no, excuse me, Sunday. Is it Sunday? Yeah, Sunday. Fort Walton back to Atlanta, up on up to Buffalo, New York for a nice long layover up there, sixteen hours. And then the uh, the scary day Monday, fly back from Buffalo to Atlanta, and then a round trip to Indy. And guess who's going to be riding with me in the seat in Indy? The FAA. So that's my check ride. Actual Yay. real check ride will be on Monday. So we um, love the FAA. Well, we love them, the but yep. it's actually a representative. Found out it's going to be a representative. So I don't know if that, I think that's actually more stressful because a representative is a company lead check airman. Oh. And of course, they know the airplane a whole lot better than the FAA does so i don't know which one would be worse but anyways uh, then next week i will not be on the show um so i'm giving you fair advance warning i will be taking some much needed more time off not that i really need it <laughs> no it's always I, listen i will tell you from this past week take the time off when you can get it it's it's great for like i said get some headspace and relax and de-stress you need it well it, it. so well, yeah, that and a very close friend of mine is going for his certification dives. And I said, well, I just happened to be off. Would you like me to join you? And uh, again, going to the Cayman Islands to go diving. So that's where I'll be. Lovely. Wow. And I'm going to um, take about three months off, I think. So, I, I think uh, you <laughs> will earn that at this point. I think I need yeah, it, actually. I think you do. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, boy. Shut up, Jeff. Shut up. Shut up, Jeff. And, oh, by the way, for those folks that are in the coffee fund uh, cadre, Jeff finally posted my first uh, round of experience. It was a 30-something minute long uh, post. uh, And then, of course, I just finished up my second uh, uh, backlog that I did of my experience, which is far more in detail than what you've gotten on the show here. So it's uh, an excellent, uh, excellent uh, trilogy. And then I got a care package, a very nice care package all the way from Kansas City. Kansas City, Matt sent me six bottles. I think it's six bottles of different barbecue sauces and two bottles 
of uh, rubs, which this past weekend, uh, Memorial Day weekend, I used on the chicken to uh, do chicken legs for everybody on the boat. I, three uh, three step process. Uh, the first step was to go ahead and brine them for 24 hours, the chicken legs. Then they came out and they got smoked, not fully cooked, but smoked for about an hour and a half. And then the last thing I did is when we were on the boat, because I have a grill um, on the boat, I grilled them and they were Matt to die for Matt. That rub was fantastic. And we already discussed which rub it was. I'm not going to make everybody jealous. So that's enough for me. I'm suddenly Sounds hungry. like a good combination yeah. there. Uh, fire and boating. <laughs> it is fantastic because listen, What's the water's right there. Yeah. We- well, I know, but okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I jumped into the Cessna <laughs> and decided to grill up at a uh, 4,000 feet or something. <laughs> That would be that worse. That would be worse. Say. Definitely. Yeah. Don't do that. Not a good idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's wrong with grilling and boat? Anyway, never mind. Uh, it's awesome. Everybody yeah. on everybody everybody in in the, it's called Illinois Creek. So basically, is it's a, a part of the lake that's kind of secluded, and that's where everybody anchors up, and you know you know what they're going to do: party, drink, you know, rock on. And I'm the only guy out there with the grill going, so everybody wanted to come onto my boat and party. So. It, uh, and of course, the, the, the really good smell of that barbecue from KC really helped out as well. So. Okay, let's don't talk about it anymore. I'm getting hungry. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Excellent. Well, thank you, KC Matt. Um, I, I hope that you didn't use it all up, uh, Dana. I'd like to try some of it. Nope, it's all gone. Sorry. Ah, dang it. Okay. <laughs> but I will um, be in Buffalo this week. So you know what that means. Yeah. Dinosaurs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah, should have yeah, we, I should have a dinosaurs meetup on Sunday evening. You should because uh, I know at least one person up there, Tiffany, uh, lives in, in the Buffalo area. So I, I will, I'm maybe, wondering uh, if Liz would be willing to drive down to Buffalo. Mm, she might for the rest of us, but I'm not sure uh, for you. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, just enough. a joker. Uh, let's see. She's being suspiciously quiet right now. Yes. I don't know. Um, Nick, how about you? How have you been doing? I know that you have been working hard on that, on that new studio. What else have you been up to? Sir? Well, that's about it, really, Jeff. I've played a few games of bolts. I uh, came third in the Wiggy Open, which was a great competition. Won some prize money on that. Um, no, uh, just uh, really sorting the house out, getting ready for you guys to come. Uh, next month, and um, also just you know setting up all the various medical hoops I have to jump through. Got lots of appointments. Um, looks like I probably won't get a, a chance to be cleared until uh, the end of June now, just because the way various appointments have worked out. You know, you phone up a specialist, and his secretary says, "Oh, sorry, he's on holiday. The first available." Appointment is, you know, end of June. So I, I've got to wait until I've seen the, all these guys before I can get a clearance. But, uh, yeah, it's fine. I'm hanging on in there and uh, enjoying some time off. And once this is all done and we've got the bedroom straight, I'll be looking forward to uh, putting my feet up a bit more. Excellent. All right. Well, I think uh, we'll just keep on moving on and we'll talk about the APG Coffee Fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. 
Fund is your way to support the APG show. And Dana mentioned it uh, that he has been putting out a lot of these coffee, not coffee, uh, crew logs, uh, talking a little bit more in depth about what's happening with him and his process of upgrading to captain. And uh, Captain Nick and I put out the uh, crew logs every now and then. And then Steph puts out one every, I don't know three four years yeah like once a year (laughs) sorry but it's always a treat when she does um so that's one of the perks uh, of being a coffee fund cadre member and since the last show uh steven abru or abru uh kevin cole robert bullock and steve trumbull Uh, used the Coffee Fund Classic method, and we have some new producers using Patreon. Uh, New producers Nick Fabricante, Georg Koster, and Buddy Davis. And a new executive producer, Greg, was a producer, and now he upped his pledge to five bucks per show, and he is now a new executive producer. And again, that's patreon.com. If you want to learn more about how you can join the Coffee Fund Cadre, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And again, remember, Greg upped his pledge. Up yours. Stand by for news. Okay, we have a uh, first item in our news folder is an update on the shoot down or the crash or whatever of the Malaysian Flight 17 uh, in, in an update to its long running investigation into the shooting down of the 777-200ER over eastern Ukraine in July 2014. Well, wow, I can't believe it's already been that long, almost four years now. The joint investigation team uh, headed by the, uh, the Dutch said that the buck SA-11 Gadfly missile transporter erector launcher and radar, or TLAR, vehicle, which fired the missile, belonged to the 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade, which was based at Kursk. The JIT was able to track the TLAR vehicle's route from Kursk to a city near the Ukrainian borders before the shootdown, as well as its return back across the border post-engagement using imagery and video posted online. An independent group of investigative journalists called Bellingcat had already come to the same conclusion and also named the 53rd Brigade way back in February of 2016. When I was reading this article, I was thinking, well, this doesn't seem like news to me. I thought we already knew this, but apparently it's more official now. The uh, actual joint investigation team uh, have basically said this is what happened. Investigators are now asking for more information about who formed the crew of the Uh, launch vehicle, what instructions they had been given, and who was responsible for the deployment. Fred Westerbeek, 
the Netherlands chief public prosecutor, said that significant steps had already been made in the investigation and that of 100 persons of interest in the investigation, the role of a large number of them is much clearer. Uh, let's see. You'll remember that the flight was uh, left Amsterdam headed to Kuala Lumpur when overflying the eastern Ukraine area uh, was shot down uh, by what they are determining now is that BUK Buck missile. Um, Russia, however, claims that this whole thing is uh, biased and they have predictably dismissed the investigators' latest findings. And the, uh, let's see, I'm scanning forward here in the article. Uh, they were, uh, the ministry says that the Russian side was, has not finished examining requests for legal assistance from the Dutch prosecutor. Nothing was said during the briefing about the assistance we provided during the investigation, Russia said, adding that the investigators forgot to mention Russia's hosting of Dutch investigators in Moscow and its declassification and supply of technical data on Buck missiles. And the Russian ministry mentions a failure to acknowledge missile manufacturer Almaz Antiz, I'm not sure that's the way you pronounce it, A-L-M-A-Z-A-N-T-E-Y. They conducted an experiment in October of 2015 during which a warhead was detonated against an Aleutian IL-86 cockpit to highlight differences compared with the damage inflicted on MH-17, the 777. So... Basically, the Dutch joint investigation uh, team is saying, yeah, it was definitely a buck missile that took this thing down. The Russians are saying, well, not so fast there, and uh, we're, we're trying to help you out in this investigation, and give us a little credit, please. We are cooperating. So what do you all think? Well, cooperation doesn't uh, change the fact that the findings uh, point the finger directly at a, a Russian military unit. So, you know, the fact that they helped out the quarry uh, is uh, to be lauded. But uh, I think the findings are perfectly clear. And I, we know exactly where the responsibility for the murder of those people lie. Yep. I agree. Yeah, I agree with Nick. It's... Uh it's it's a plain black and white written down with all the investigation they did and uh, obviously we know who's to blame so it's really not a whole lot you can expound upon on that all right well then we should move on uh remember that on the last show we had it was pretty much breaking news uh earlier in that day when we recorded there was a crash of a 737 200 uh in havana or uh right outside Havana, Havana. And uh, just after the show, I was perusing the uh, the webs and saw this uh, video from a security camera that shows what appears to be the Cubana flight, the 737, just basically falling out of the air. And it really is, I, I had to look at it several times and I'm thinking, is that thing like actually falling backwards i mean oh, isn't geez. that what it looks like you know, i haven't video? had a chance to actually play this one. Oh no i did I mean, not do my homework i'm sorry i didn't know there was going to be you, video homework to do yeah <laughs> i just go to that youtube uh, link there in the uh in the uh note uh, i just put a uh, kind of a oh, photo yeah. and you can kind of see it in the uh, upper portion of the um the still oh, image it there, yeah 
Um, and I, Nick or Dana, did you get a chance to uh, look at the yeah, uh, yeah, video? Yeah, I took a look. Look, it looks very much like flat spin to me. It looks like uh, the attitude of the aircraft uh, looks like it's flat plating on its way down, rotating about uh, the center of gravity, um, nose high, uh, spinning left, um, and it is general trajectory is left right but of course because it's it's in a spin it's not um it, you know at one point it's actually going tail first so you know that's that's what yeah that's do. what i'm I, yeah as you watch I, I'm just like well how do you round. how do you do like that it comes around this way so yeah, yeah I, I, I think yeah, it, i think it's just the uh, the fact that it's in it is flat planing it's no longer got, got any forward speed only inertia is carrying it in the general direction on the screen of left to right uh, but the aircraft itself is in an aerodynamic turning spin, but flat to the ground. So it will at one point appear to be going tail first. You know, I, I wonder, and this is just me going out on a limb here, but I wonder if it's not a, a case of possibly an engine failure where the, the other engine was accidentally shut down. The, the, the good engine may have been shut down. You see what I'm saying? How they end up in a stall like that so soon after takeoff? I think it's aliens. <laughs> uh, yeah. wait, if one engine's failed and they shut the wrong one down, Dana, then it will keep going in the same direction. It won't have any asymmetric thrust. Uh, it's only really if... Uh, Until you stall the airplane. Yeah, of course you can still on the airplane. Yes, and it can. It could enter a spin. That that could well have been the cause. But there are so many ways that they could have mishandled the aircraft uh, if they just uh, used too much power and have been too low on airspeed. It would do that. You don't necessarily. Have yep, to true. Uh, engine failure with too much overcorrection or not yep. the right correction. Yeah. Uh, of course, we uh, we never speculate on this show. Never. No, mm -hmm. but that's the way I'll be going. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, hopefully, we'll we'll get more information about it. I, I didn't check right I'm before like, we started the I recording mean, today if they have any updates on not it. Not that I want to watch video of this or anything, but I mean, it, unfortunately, you only see that last little, you know, two seconds in the actual video clip. So it's hard to see what's happening right before that, which I think would give a lot more answers. Oh, yeah. I just think, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen a big airplane like that ever do anything like that ever. It just, I, I looked at it and went, that nah, can't be right. Is that real? An airplane is an airplane. <laughs> They can all yeah. fly or not fly uh, the same way. Colonel Jeff said uh, regarding this, there was a discussion online uh, that uh, that looked like a maneuver that he used to do in an F-15. Of course, it, up at altitude and the F-15 is kind of an airplane built to do that kind of crazy stuff. You know, we've seen some pretty crazy things done by airplanes at air shows like at uh, Wings Over Pittsburgh and Fombra and stuff like that, where they they do some pretty amazing things with vectored thrust and such but not on an airliner never seen an airliner do anything like that and uh, it's pretty pretty scary looking all right moving on the u.s air force is building an online game to recruit young pilots move over last the last starfighter a new online game could revolutionize the way the u.s air force finds and recruits young pilots drawing on data from air education and training commands i never even knew that there was a command called air education and training command the aetc 
Pilot Training Next initiative. The service is developing an, on- an online game directed at high school and college-aged individuals who show the skills and personality traits needed to excel in pilot training and other areas. According to the Air Education and Training Command's Commander Lieutenant General Stephen Quast, by asking participants to run through a few scenarios, make decisions, answer questions, the Air Force can measure a myriad of personal characteristics from critical thinking skills to moral compass. I can measure critical thinking, creative thinking, conceptual thinking, contextual thinking, collaborative thinking, constructive thinking. I can tell if you're empathetic. I can tell if you cheat. I can tell if you cut corners. I can tell if you are morally courageous under pressure or whether you save your own skin. Are you sure this isn't Mark Zuckerberg? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, maybe it's his uh, I uncle or something. I thought he knew all that stuff already. <laughs> That's true. That's all he has to do. Just go over to Facebook, yeah, ask it. Zuck. Yep, hey, Zuck, just give me some information on these information people. on this individual, please. Thank you. <laughs> Good point. You could probably save a lot of money, too, that way, Nick. <laughs> no, I think Facebook would charge handsomely for that. Oh, no, that's true. Probably. That's true. Anyway, um, it goes on. We'll put a link to this article in the show notes. Uh, I'll... Um, uh, let's see. Something in here says uh, they'll. I'll probably send a message to that IP address saying, "Go tell your mom and dad you're special," and I will offer you a hundred thousand dollar signing bonus, and I will send you to Harvard for four years for free if you're willing to tell your parents to come in to the recruiting station. Again, this is the uh, commander of the AETC. Uh, let's see. Uh, we preserve the values of our society, but we can still see the talent. Anyway, uh, interesting um, kind of way to try to, you know, they're really hurting, the military is, as, as well as other aspects of aviation, uh, really hurting, uh, finding qualified people to fly these airplanes. And uh, they're, they're doing whatever they can to, you know, figure out who would be good for doing this kind of I, thing. I love the idea. I, I think it's a, it's a great, relatively low-cost way of reaching out to uh, hundreds of thousands of potential uh, pilots and uh, other flight crew members uh, and um, simplifying the process so that when you do invite people uh, to uh, you know uh, put in a uh, formal application, you, you think you've probably whittled them down to the guys that are, and girls that are likely to make it. Right. I have kind of mixed feelings on it. I don't know why. I guess more just that I think it's sad that there's a lack of folks wanting people are just volunteering to do. Yeah. yeah. And that it takes a video game to entice them to not to entice them, but just as part of the recruitment effort. So kids these days oh, stuff. Kids. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. It's all everybody's all into well video games and av geeking. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. if think about it. A lot of people are into internet and and gaming, and uh, you know, they're just yeah, not twenty four seven. You know, and phone. They're just not motivated to to be out there and hands on as much anymore. To, you know, even even the you know like tech type of jobs that are you know technical type of jobs. What I should have said, you know, air con- fixing air conditioning, fixing uh, you know cars and all that type of stuff. They're, they're hurting for people too. Mechanics, they're looking for aviation mechanics. They can't find aviation mechanics. So it's it's in all walks of life. And I think that has a lot to be said about the, the generation that we have coming up. So. Yeah, I think it'll be a lot easier to get people to do this than it will be to walk in through the recruitment office. I, uh, I agree. 
Yep. That's why I said I kind of have mixed feelings on it. Like, I think it's going to be helpful, certainly. And I think it's a good idea. But at the same time, I it's like, eh. It's fantastic. It, it's it's a great, I hope it's it works. a great idea. I think so. <laughs> okay. Are you being sincere, Dana? Always. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. To <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is an interesting story. Uh, I'm not really sure. I'm kind of scratching my head on this one. I'm not sure exactly what is going on here. But uh, this happened in Redding, California. Uh, a pilot at a Californian flight school and his assistant have been arrested after kidnapping and attempting to deport a Chinese flight student back to China. Jonathan McConkey a pilot, qualified flight instructor, and general manager of IASCO Flight Training School, who is alleged to have carried out the kidnapping with his assistant and ground instructor, Kelsey Hoser. The school in Redding, look at this, this journalism is just awesome. That's not the way, that's Redding, Pennsylvania, that's the way you spell that, not Redding, California. Yes, uh, and in another, another place in the article, they spell it differently. Uh, Consistency. Anyway, important. yeah. The school in Reading is contact, contracted with the Chinese Civil Aviation Authority to train new pilots. 21-year-old Tianshu Chris Shi has been in the U.S. for seven months training at the school. It is alleged that McConkie and Hoser visited, visited Shi at his apartment last Thursday, where they told him without explanation to pack and be ready to leave for China the next morning. She, the student, told the, re, the record Searchlight, the uh, newspaper, he was unsure why they wanted him out of the country, but did say he was banned from flying two months ago and suspected his lack of English was the reason. I can't speak English well in life, but I can speak English well with air traffic control. That's him quoted. Uh, the couple that uh, tried to kidnap him uh, went to his apartment and uh, they tried to grab him and take him away. And he said he wasn't going anywhere. And then he ended up recording uh, the conversation with his smartphone. And I, uh, I wish I could play the smartphone conversation, but there's a lot of, a lot of profanity in the, uh, in the exchange. But uh, basically uh, McConkie uh, is yelling and using a lot of um, expletives saying that he has got to go and kind of threatening him. And then the uh, his partner uh, speaking in Chinese is um, also explaining to the dude that he's got to go. But the thing that I don't understand is if he really was supposed to be uh, deported, wouldn't that be something that uh, like formal federal agents would take care of or yeah, maybe I, even local police? I don't police? think private businesses can decide to deport individuals at all. I don't think so either. No, I, I know I they think can't. <laughs> And we're, they're, they're, no, I was going to say they're spending a lot of money, these Chinese students. In fact, uh, down not far from where Mike lives uh, and has his airplane based in Noonan, um, there's a big Chinese flight school operation there. And airlines like uh, uh, Ximen, how do you pronounce that? X-I-A-M-E-N. Ximen? Ximen. Ximen Airlines. Uh, is sponsoring these young people to come over here to learn how to fly and uh, to the tune of $90,000. And apparently, if they don't complete the training here, then the person receiving the training and his family will be required to pay the money back to the airline. So there's a lot of pressure put on these people to be successful. And um, 
you know, apparently it looked like in this case, maybe this guy wasn't doing so well, or maybe there was some kind of a personality conflict between him and the, um, the flight instructor in the school. I don't know. Does the, I wonder if there's just the way the money exchanges hands has something to do with it. You know, if they keep the money, but don't have to continue training him. Oh, could be. I don't know. The fact that these two were ultimately arrested and booked for conspiracy and kidnapping, I think <laughs> tells the whole story. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I mean, they both must have flipped or they must have had some little business going on here that was a bit shady and decided that this guy had to go. But uh, whatever, they, uh, this is just <laughs> appalling. And the fact that it's linked with people being trained to be airline pilots really concerns me. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I, again, that's one of those things that uh, I was just kind of uh, scratching my head on this one. I'm not sure what's going on there. A lot more to the story, I think, that we don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of history here that we're we're not aware of, and what was their plan? I mean, really, you're gonna fly them up to Canada or something to deport them? Just call INS if if you have any concerns, and let them investigate it. Or as Liz says in the chat room, ice, ice, baby. <laughs> yeah, but this guy had a visa. He had a appropriate visa that was yeah. Still I mean, valid. he was here he legally, was here legally, right? So, and even like if he wasn't month. here legally, you can't. Do that no, you can't take citizen. the law into your own hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that guy on TV that does. What, what's the, the the guy has a long hair and uh, and his wife? You know, they they uh, bounty hunters. What, what's his name? Some people say, "Oh, you're a bounty hunter dog." I say, "No, bro, I'm a bounty hunter dog." I don't know. I don't watch TV. <laughs> it's been a while since the show has been on. I guess. Anyway, maybe the people in the chat room know what the heck I'm talking about. Or or maybe you just want me to... Shut up, Jeff. Um, continuing on with... That's actually coming in quite handy. Um, <laughs> the next item... In, <laughs> they, you all want your own version so that when you're with me, you can just play it on your phone. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't say it. The clip said it. Um, Rolls-Royce triples capacity to fix Trent 1000 engines. We know that the uh, Dreamliner is amongst uh, a few airplanes that are using these engines, the Trent 1000, and we know that uh, a a large number of the airplanes in the fleet uh, are grounded and waiting for their engines to be fixed or overhauled or whatever. Uh, Looks like Rolls-Royce has finally uh, decided to uh, build some more facilities and hire some more people and increase the number of engines it can fix at any one time to about 20. It's, they've tripled their capacity to to fix these things. And some 34 aircraft are on the ground at the moment, and this could rise to about 50 in the coming weeks, a person with knowledge of the subject said. And uh, they also say in this article, a Rolls-Royce will announce that it has been able to bring forward a permanent fix for the IP or LP, I guess. Isn't it the low-pressure compressor blades? Uh, low sure. or intermediate. I'm not sure exactly where the... Okay. Uh, from the beginning of 2019 to the back end of this year. So they're hoping that they can... They're getting a lot of heat from the airlines, wouldn't you say, Nick? Oh, yeah, but, I mean, there's not much you can do. Uh, as an airline, if the engines aren't operating and the uh, manufacturer doesn't have the capacity to fix them, then you have a little alternative but to keep the aircraft on the ground. But there are so many restrictions being placed on the Rolls-Royce-powered uh, um, Dreamliners now that uh, it's it's going well beyond a joke. 
Okay, and I have the opportunity right now to correct an accuracy uh, or accuracy rating. Uh, Lane in the uh, chat room is saying that the 787 is the only plane that uses the Trent 1000. So uh, I thought I, I thought perhaps some other airplanes might be affected, but nope, just the uh, 787. So uh, anyway, well, that's at least good news that they're doing something and hopefully will carve themselves out of this big hole they've dug for themselves uh, soon because it's got to be affecting the bottom line of this uh, great company. Rolls yeah, Royce. and the airlines affected. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, re remember the incident with the Saratov Airlines? Uh, they took off out of Moscow and uh, in a Antonov AN-148, and they crashed shortly after takeoff, killing all 71 on board. And it looks like uh, during the investigation uh, by the Russian investigators, they, they just found some things that were quite troubling, uh, like the airline carries out crew rostering without taking into account the normalization of working hours, the time of rest, flight personnel, and, and uh, the control of fatigued, uh, fatigue. Flight crew members deliberately do not observe the duty and rest times, and there's no proper control by the airline. And pilots are allowed to fly without a second medical examination, etc. I'm not sure what that means. But in other words, it looks like they don't have all their ducks in a row and the uh, regulatory agency in Russia decided to revoke the airline's uh, operating certificate as of May 31st, uh, which is today. And uh, so they are no longer allowed to operate until... They figure out what's going on, and they correct, I guess, some of these safety issues. And what's what's um, the wonderful phrase that Captain Nick uses for having his ducks in a row? Something about in a pile. Titterabook. <laughs> I don't think I'm allowed to say that on oh, air. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I think you have said it on air before. Anyway. Really? I, I suppose you can yeah. get your poop in a pile. That would be a. Yeah. Oh okay, yeah, well, I like that. That's, that's what I was thinking. What? Phrase. That's that's a. Uh, you know, for public consumption. What's what's the uh, term that you, you like? Tittery boo or something like that. Tickety boo. Tickety boo. I heard that on another. Po I listened to a Formula One podcast, and it's mostly uh, uh, Brits. And I, I heard one of them say it. I went, oh, I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> I anyway. love it. Uh, let's see. This is an interesting one. Just happened a couple of days ago, the 29th of May, of an airplane leaving John Wayne in Orange County. Uh, Piper Malibu, a turbocharged, uh, single-engine turbocharged airplane, pretty nice airplane, uh, with uh, the pilot and two occup uh, two passengers uh, left the um, John Wayne Airport in Orange County, heading toward to Prescott, Arizona. Prescott. Prescott. Oh, really? Yep. I've never heard anybody re uh, pronounce it that way. Interesting. Local. Prescott. Yeah. Prescott. Ah, thank you. Like uh, Pierre instead of Pierre in, in uh, South oh, Dakota. Oh, I didn't know that one either. Sort of like huh, that. Interesting. Yeah, it's Pierre. Okay, uh, so Prescott. Um, well, they made it to Prescott, but not to the airport. They uh, landed on a highway or a road, and uh, they snagged, one of the wings snagged a light pole, then kind of flipped over, but... I don't think anybody experienced any serious injuries. Uh, they ran out of fuel. Oops. Yep. I don't know how you do that in this day and time, especially in an airplane like that. Yeah, no. You know? I mean, if it looks like it's going to be, you know, you're en route and maybe you didn't calculate things correctly or there's some sort of problem that's 
causing your fuel to be depleted more quickly, you've noticed these things and you go somewhere else before you reach your destination and perhaps run out of or run the risk of running out of fuel is at least what I would consider doing myself. Yeah. I mean, assume that you do good fuel planning, you know, before you leave. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm just trying to, you know, give this particular pilot maybe some benefit of the doubt. Perhaps you encounter stronger than expected headwinds. Perhaps there was a problem with uh, the airplane itself causing it to burn more fuel than you expected. So I think mm-hmm. there are potential reasons why that might happen. And there's thunder and lightning going on outside my window right now. So if you're hearing that, that's what that is. It's not my stomach. Even though we were talking about food, it's not plumbing. Another thunderstorm. <laughs> plumbing? Uh, not your plumbing? plumbing. <laughs> no, there was a couple shows ago, there was, uh, we were having a thunderstorm and I think Jeff asked if there was like a toilet flushing in the background or there was plumbing. Going <laughs> <out>. <laughs> I usually have the plumbing issues know, yeah. here. Well, not with myself as well as, well as the uh, pipes <laughs> above my head right now. Yeah. But anyway, you know, I, I can imagine other reasons why perhaps even with appropriate fuel planning, something might have happened. But it's still something that you need to be aware of and notice um, and, you know, as part of your situational awareness and take into account and not put yourself in that situation where you might run out of fuel. Just out of curiosity, would there be a place between Southern California and Prescott? Oh, yeah. Hold on. To, I'm going to pull up. Uh, a lot of places? Yeah. Okay. Many places. I was, Definitely. And, are there? Definitely. Okay. Ooh. And it, it mm. might be one of the, you know, it could be a very simple answer. Get there, Itis. Yeah. So, you know, it could be. Oh, we can make it. Yeah, we, I've made it we before. We can make it. Make it. <laughs> or, you know, let, let's face it. A 1970, was it 19? I'm trying to find it. Um, what year is this Malibu? It doesn't have it on here, but the uh, the Malibu, unless it's a newer aircraft, you know the, the fuel gauges uh, on Piper, if, if it's anything like what I used to fly, uh, not the most accurate things in the world. So really, yeah. it's it's an average. You, you want to use an average amount of fuel burn per hour based on what the manufacturer specs were. So for example, on the uh, Warrior, I would use about uh, you know eight eight to ten gallons per hour. Um, is what I would calculate, and ten being obviously more conservative, eight being more lenient. But you know, the bigger the aircraft, the bigger the engine, and so let's say it probably has a three sixty in here, an IO three sixty, maybe even bigger. Mm-hmm. So you, you you might want to plan for you know like a, a sixteen eighteen gallons per hour burn. So you know if you're calculating out that way, then you can put in some fudge factor in there to be very conservative. Um, so it's really up to the pilot to do that planning. But again, going back to fuel gauges, though, you know, the, depending on what year the Malibu is, if it's a brand new one, I can see, you know, be digital gauges. Oh, the older, they're only accurate oh. when you're on empty, like when yeah, it, pr- pr- it's actually much. empty and it reads empty. Because I've actually seen Piper products that will read empty on the gauge, but still have plenty of fuel as Quick well. question here. Would an yeah. aircraft like this have uh, low fuel warnings? No. 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 Oh, no. really? Yeah. Wow. So he may not even have been looking at the gauge. Well, that's why that's where it comes back to your situational awareness. And, you know, yeah. if you're flying this type of aircraft, I would hope that you are experienced enough to know to look at your fuel gauges occasionally. Well, in, in, I thought this was a turboprop, but I guess it's not. No, it's mm-hmm. it's 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 probably yeah, it's a normal, normally aspirated engine, uh, especially on the, the Malibu. And it's, oh. it, you know, if it's an older man, I mean, I don't know what your Malibu. I mean, they've been making the Malibu. It's an eighty six. Eighty six. So yeah, yeah, it has the old uh, 
old needle gauges for the for the fuel quantity. Yeah. So it could be any. They're not number. terribly accurate. They're not accurate at all. And if you know, if you if you start throwing in the weight and balance issue, how much fuel you're going to put on? Are you to in in the Piper product, it used to be to the tabs on the Piper Warrior. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the Malibu, but you fuel to the tabs. And I think that was, uh, I think it was 17 or 18 gallons of fuel in each wing tank. So you could do the calculation on that to figure out. But you know, it's Dr. Steph mentioned you can have. Uh, additional wind, uh, you know, make a stupid mistake and for some reason have, you know, leave the flaps and flaps, you know, 10 and not even realize that that's more drag. I mean, there are a whole lot of list of reasons where you'd be, be burning more fuel. But the bottom line is, is that he may or may not have, may or may not have had enough fuel or something else, which, which, I had the experience of dealing with in a Piper product as a Piper Comanche, which had the old bladder fuel tanks, and we had a piece of the bladder break loose and block the fuel line, thus oh. had flown and lost the engine on short approach into Enid, Oklahoma. Um, and I pitched the nose of the airplane down to get underneath the, the power lines because we weren't going to make it over because the engine was dead and we were fully configured. And uh, by that time, we had switched tanks and were able to regain the the engine. So, uh, you know, that's another issue with the Piper product is you have to remember to switch tanks. You do. So. Yeah. I used to have a sticky note. <laughs> yep. So, so there, there, are, there are a lot especially of... Especially if you go from flying a high-wing aircraft where you don't have to switch fuel tanks, and then you transition to something low-wing where you do have to remember to switch fuel tanks. Yep, yeah. or the fuel, you know, the fuel tank could have went out. Uh, fuel tank, fuel pump. Yeah, uh, fuel that's pump, another yeah. critical thing on a low. Or you aircraft. could have. I had a, which fortunately we caught this before we went anywhere. But had had it been a different time of day or different circumstances, we may not have noticed. Um, I went out to fly an aircraft a couple of months ago, and the bo- the boost pump is supposed to be on, um, so we turn it on, and uh, it was leaking from the gas collator down underneath the nose of the aircraft, but only when the boost pump was on. So, you know, if you had that sort of a problem and you left the boost pump on for longer than you were supposed to, you could be leaking fuel and not have as much fuel as you expected. So. Yeah. So all kinds of stuff. And I'm looking here just now. um, Really the only probably suitable place to land before getting to Prescott would be like Lake Havasu, which is a good, let me see how many miles this is. 80, almost 90 nautical miles to the west, if you're coming from that direction. Lake Havasu, what's this other one here? So it's almost an hour. Yeah. So they, I mean, they would have had to notice pretty early on that it was going to be tight to have to make that decision. Hmm. So. Well, I'm hoping that we'll we'll find out what, what uh, happened in this case. Um, I got this information from the Air Safety Network. And uh, I'll put the uh, link to it in the show notes. Interesting. So, well, I learned something new today. I don't know why, but I always thought that the um, the Malibu was a uh, like I had a PT six or something like that. But I guess I must be thinking of some other airplane. I, I thought um, it was a cocktail. That's the uh, Mirage. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's okay. the Mirage. Yeah. Oh, is, by yeah. the way, talking about mad fuel gauges, the Mirage uh, three that didn't have a fuel gauge. And we're talking about the jet? Yep. It had a fuel debit counter. 
which assumed you'd filled the, well, you assumed you, the tanks had been filled to full, full, and as the fuel was sucked into the engine, it would count down and give you a reading. So there you go. The, <laughs> the more your wow. fuel you use, the less accurate it was going to be because there's always going to be an error in there. I thought that was the maddest thing the French ever did. That's crazy. <laughs> so I'm just looking oh. here real quick, because, yeah, so the so this particular aircraft, the PA46310P, is uh, Continental um, TSIO 520B. Team. Yep, yep. so 310 horsepower. But then the... Oh, wait. There are different versions. The Malibu Meridian is the turboprop-powered version. So there is a version uh, of this aircraft with a turboprop, just not this one. Okay. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. You learn something new every day. And the Mirage is the next one. It's like the in between the Correct. Malibu and the Meridian. So I was I was close, but yeah, it's the Meridian that has a turboprop in it. Okay. Sweet. Okay. Uh, we'll move on to this interesting incident and... What's really interesting is the name of this airline, which I'm going to attempt to say, and it's probably going to not be anything close. It's an Indonesian name. Jayawiyaya Dijantara. Okay, you try it. Jayawiyaya. Okay. Jayawiyaya. A 737-200 freighter. Performing a freight flight from Jayapura, Japura, to Wamena, <laughs> Indonesia, with a cargo of food, including rice, cement, and other cargo weighing 12,557 kilograms, landed on W place runway 15, but dropped the right hand thrust reverser, it was a JTAD engine, in the touchdown zone. And Sometimes we'll we'll use the phrase like okay we dropped the reversers you know to help slow us down. No, they actually dropped. <laughs> it dropped it fell off. off. It fell off, it fell the, off the engine, <laughs> off the right hand engine in the touchdown zone. Must have been a hard landing, and the aircraft subsequently veered off the runway to the left, departed the left hand runway edge about 800 meters down the runway, came to a stop with all gear on soft ground about 800 meters further down the runway, about 50 meters off the edge of the runway. No injuries are reported. Damage to the aircraft is being assessed. And there are some pictures here which are interesting. And you can see the, uh, the reverser portion of the assembly of the right engine left uh, on, the in, on, the, uh, on the runway. Uh, I hate when that happens. The back end of the engine just fell off. <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, there's no blades or anything inside that bit. I, I, <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, don't see that very often, no, I'm, thankfully. I'm a little bit, I mean, I understand that when that fell off, they would have had uh, asymmetric thrust reverses, but I'm a little surprised that they ran off the runway. So, I, I mean, I... Maybe I it's not a very wide runway. I don't know. Well, it looks normal, worse, doesn't it? I don't want to yeah, cast discussions on the, the flight crew, but... You start getting asymmetric uh, steering problems uh, with reverses engaged on landing. Uh, probably a good idea to cancel and just use the brakes. But uh, yeah, and if you if you can't stop without the use of reverses, then you shouldn't be landing there anyway, because <laughs> there's no way you can always guarantee that that reverses would be available. So, well, let's just say the 
The safety record uh, for Indonesia and Indonesian airlines is not at the top of the list in the world. No, you're right. By the way, I've been watching our map of listeners and Indonesia just disappeared. They all turned. Oh, no, we've lost Indonesia. Yeah. <laughs> lost them. I <laughs> mean, it. after you massacred their names, they, they half them <laughs> left and now all of them have gone. In, in their minds, we're at zero <laughs> percent. Yeah credibility and accuracy sorry so, yeah. yeah yeah but it's an interesting <laughs> thing isn't it what, what aircraft was that i was just curious 737 200 oh, yeah. who makes that okay let's go okay. on developing this afternoon a disturbance on board a flight to atlanta prompted a delta pilot to make an emergency landing Channel 2 anchor Wendy Corona is live in the Satellite News Center. Wendy, the flight landed in Oklahoma. Carol, a passenger who was on the flight is painting a picture of exactly what happened for us. Here is the suspect as police let him through the Tulsa airport, if we have that video. A passenger who was on the plane tells ABC News the man was on the plane singing loudly. He refused to stop even when he was asked to by multiple flight attendants, so the pilot then decided to make an emergency landing. Flight 1156 left Portland, Oregon, heading here to Atlanta. The 737-900 had 172 passengers and six crew members on board. That flight, we're told, landed without incident in Tulsa around noon, and police then met the suspect there at the plane. The passenger who spoke to ABC News says the man screamed, God is coming, as police took him off the plane. We are staying in touch with our partners at ABC News and our sister station in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as we work to gather more information. And fortunately, uh, we have some uh, audio from the flight, and we can hear the man singing. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain, and the waving wheat can sure smell sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. Oh, uh, hang on a minute. The wind comes sweeping down the plain. Was Dana flying? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> wow. So uh, uh so that was very appropriate for him to be singing. Yeah, good good Oklahoma. song choice at least. Yeah. And they had a band with him as I well. Been, an, an orchestra. Very <laughs> impressive. Very, very Was he tall and white-haired with a nice nice clean mustache and uh, you know no, looking actually not. No, no. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was funny and it was an opportunity for me to play Oklahoma. <laughs> great music yes great music all right well that's the end thank goodness of the uh we scraped to the bottom of the news bucket and uh, that means now it is time for the best part of the show which is your feedback captain incoming message okay let's start off with um feedback number one The FAA is down with drones, but I think that's a good thing. But it has a whole lot of questions before it lets Uber fill them with people. In contrast to state officials eager to bring in high-tech jobs or city regulators who weren't fast enough to deal with the aggressive not-quite-taxi competition, the FAA has serious power and at the national level. And it won't just let Uber launch flying cars without its say-so. The federal government will finally embrace drones, or is finally embracing drones. This week, the FAA endorsed 10 pilot projects that will see UAVs delivering medicine, inspecting infrastructure, monitor the border, and 
more. This tech is developing so rapidly that our country is reaching a tipping point, said Secretary of Transportation Elaine Chao when announcing the trials. Depending on the results, the little buzzers could become even more common than the mosquitoes. Some of them are being programmed to help eradicate. Anyway, there was some kind of a conference that you may have heard of in the news uh, that Uber hosted regarding using drones to uh, carry people around. And uh, let's see, uh, amongst the folks at the conference or participants at the conference was the Federal Aviation Administration. Unlike the other participants who were all gung-ho about the possibility of launching passenger stuffed drones off the top of tall buildings, the agency tasked with keeping America... American Skies Safe struck a more measured note. While saying that it would work on regulations and air traffic control systems, it stressed that compared to smaller drones, the path to regulating human flight is likely to be different, harder, and longer. Was tempted, but I didn't do it. Uber has made its reputation by being quick and disruptive, often ignoring rules and regulations that would hold it back from deploying its cars. And for flying vehicles, the strategy is not going to wash. In contrast to state officials eager to bring in high-tech jobs. Wait a minute. Didn't I just read that? Yes. Something similar. Well, it uh, looks like it's the same paragraph that was earlier in the article. (laughs) Okay. I'll skip that. Uh, The FAA said, we're the safety regulators. We're going to come at this from a safety perspective, said the acting administrator of the FAA, Dan Elwell in an onstage conversation with Uber's head of product, Jeff Holden. Um, So Uber wants to build a network of these things using batteries, motors, multiple small propellers for lift. These vertical takeoff and landing aircraft would be uh, quieter, cheaper, and easier to fly than helicopters, which is really not saying a lot as far as the quiet part of it. Uber proposes a service that will depart from drone ports set atop tall buildings, flying customers across cities starting in Los Angeles and Dallas-Fort Worth by the end of 2023. Sounds neat. Again, this is from, uh, is this from Wired magazine? Uh, I think so. Yes, Wired. Yeah, it says, uh, sounds neat. Just don't expect it to happen too soon. Quote, the pace of technological advancement in this industry is faster than anything we've had to deal with, uh, the acting head of the FAA, Elwell, says. When you put passengers on autonomous vehicles as opposed to delivering a package, you introduce a much, much higher bar you need to get over. To get past that, Uber is proposing having onboard pilots at first before eventually making them autonomous. And then they put in parentheses, hopefully. I'm not hoping that. I guess Wired Magazine is. Um, anyway, uh, the most telling exchange between Elwell and Uber's Holden came when an audience member asked how air traffic control might handle or an an air traffic controller might handle an exponential increase in flying machines. Holden described a scene or scheme that involves carving out a corridor of airspace over Dallas Fort Worth, which commercial vehicles would avoid and within which Uber would manage the traffic. And then the FAA guy says, uh, what you just just described is where we don't want to go. You just described segre- segregated airspace. And he said that jokingly at first, offering to give him a number to try negotiating that with American Airlines. Then he got serious. My hope is that we don't have to do that. He would rather see an integrated airspace where everyone shares the skies with rules and technology to avoid, to avoid each other which he views as a better long-term solution. So basically, everybody kind of poured water on 
this whole idea to rapidly introduce these vehicles and cities and transporting passengers and drones and you know integrating them with the other commercial traffic up there and i think that uh, you know they're even having trouble with the darn autonomous cars i can't imagine the uh, kind of issues that they're going to have trying to uh, do the same thing with uh, autonomous flying vehicles. What do y'all think? You know, we've said it before, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And I don't see this changing anything about that. So, yeah. Oh, you're just a party pooper, Steph. It's not going to happen. I agree. Not in my my lifetime, anyway. I just hope they're not powered by windows. (laughs) (laughs) The operating system. (laughs) A blue screen of death. Well, or whatever. Just, you, know, yeah. you, you get in there, you get one off a really tall building, and it says, uh, stand by for a, a Windows update. Update. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ask Matt Smith about Windows exactly. updates in yep. the midst of a. Yep. <laughs> I wonder how long it's going to take me to fall 36 floors and whether it's got time to do this update. <laughs> hurry, hurry, hurry. <laughs> just up the bandwidth is really good. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree, Steph, and I think we all here uh, on at the, at the APG uh, believe that this is just um, people that are delving into a space that they really don't understand. Yes. I mean, they're, and I'm all for being excited about technology and things like that. I know I really wasn't earlier with the Air Force uh, recruitment tool thing, but um, <laughs> I am excited about technology, and I think stuff like this is neat in theory, but... No, there's so far that you have to go on it before we're before it's even going to be ready for prime time that it's not going to happen anytime soon. So, yeah, I agree. Well, you know, it's just like who would ever thought that the Air Force would ever have to go to the Internet to start recruiting and uh, using games to try to get pilots to sign up. I mean, when I was trying to sign up and that wasn't very long ago. Um, I couldn't even get a time of day because they weren't looking for pilots, looking to get rid of pilots. So uh, times do change and do change relatively quickly, especially nowadays with the new technologies coming fast and furious. I mean, we just bought this uh, beautiful um, Apple uh, MacBook Pro that I spilled a beer on. Don't remind me. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, of course, as soon as I bought the, the computer, it was outdated. So um, I'm... I think the feeling would be far more difficult to get it past the FAA or the you know the, the traveling public. I think the technology and the ability to do it will be here a lot quicker than that. Um, then we'd be willing to to accept it. So I agree with agree with you and disagree with you. I mean, I think the technology is here and will be here very quickly. I don't think we as a the human race will be ready to accept it. But I can't speak for the younger generation that is very computer and tech savvy. So they may be more accepting of it. Oh, I think they'll be very accepting of it eventually. Yes. Uh, And what's more, I see, um, you know, using social media to engage potential uh, employees for the military is uh, probably the way to go. It's the best way to engage with people who are growing up fast and uh, looking for a career. So uh, I personally think those are two uh, excellent avenues. Uh, I, uh, I think Uber has shaken up uh, the taxi industry, uh, and uh, I think it stands a good chance of uh, shaking up the uh, aviation industry, uh, which has traditionally been incredibly uh, 
um, rule bound and um, you know reluctant to change. So uh, I think technology is moving faster than a lot of those FAA, FAA guys are capable of moving. And uh, I think you know at least they're getting one step ahead rather than being swept along in a wave of uh, you know, inevitable change. Again, I, I tend to be at the more pessimistic end of the scale, and I'm into technology. I really am. I love technology. And that laptop is not obsolete, Dana. <laughs> they may have introduced some new ones, but it's far from obsolete. In fact, the nah, it's a brick. The laptop just, just that's, get rid of it now. That, 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 uh, the, the laptop that is running everything, recording everything here in, in my studio is a 2014, and it, it has a, a still a long life ahead of it. So, yeah, don't, I mean, don't it, you worry. It's probably, a, 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 I guess that's a wrong word, obsolete. It's new technology is coming out so fast that it's now not the, the front edge of the, the leading edge of technology. Actually, the CPUs, the, uh, the, the, what's powering the thing have reached kind of a plateau. I mean, they're just making small incremental increases in speed and battery consumption and everything else uh, lately. So it's kind of, it isn't quite, um, you know, the, the same breakneck speed that uh, the advancement in technology was as far as chips and, and central processing units used to be. So, And to be, but, to be fair, I think uh, when you're talking about aviation and safety critical um environments you don't actually want the latest technology you want something that's well proven uh when the airbus came in now uh, we are talking um over two decades ago um the ones that i fly they came in with the flight control computers they're three eight sixes uh, with those who remember uh, those uh, computer chips they were really old but they were incredibly reliable because they've been around for a very long time uh, and everything was written in machine code, so uh, there was no chance of uh, um, uh, major software updates. Uh, sorry, uh, major software faults. Um, with those uh, computer chips, uh, everything was perhaps a little slower than it could have been, but um, you know it was incredibly reliable. Yeah, and I, for one, am very encouraged by the fact that the FAA isn't going. Oh heck yeah, let's uh, let's bend all the rules and get this thing out there as quickly as possible. That they're kind of taking a more conservative uh, pace when it comes to this technology. So um, I think that was kind of good news. That I, I think the people, a lot of the people that read that publication probably looked at it as a as a downer, like a. But I kind of looked at it as, yay, the FAA is, in this case, I'm glad they move at a glacial pace. And um, just an aside, I was looking at uh, the chat room and Wayne Johnston says, maybe I shouldn't watch APG live in the office. Tech guys behind me thought Jeff was a 70s porn star. Respect to the mustache. <laughs> yeah, that made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm the host of the Airline Pilot Guys show uh, with a 1970s porn star mustache. You need to just find some yeah. whoop whoop a dapa dapa uh, music in the background as well. A <laughs> whack a whack whack. Yeah, yeah, get some of that uh, yeah, Carlos likes to, <laughs> to play. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I, with that, I wonder what they think of me. I mean, I've got the slat cap on. I mean, going back into the 20s and 30s, crying out loud with this thing on. I don't know. Wayne, what do they think about Dana? Oh, a lot hey. of compliments your cap has received tonight. I've noticed, Dana. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wayne, well, don't, th don't thank me. The last one was from the lovely uh, Josine. Oh, is she finally 
Oh, no, it's oh. Tiffany. I'm yep, looking she's for. here with us. Josine. I love it. APG, airline porn guy. <laughs> <laughs> totally different show. Moving on, yeah. shall we? <laughs> if that's what you were looking show, for, I'm sorry. Family yeah, show. Yeah, family show. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, if I was quickly quick enough, Does I Does he look like Ron Jeremy? It. That's what I want to know. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. I hope not. Well, at least in the face. Okay, moving on. Uh, item number two. Uh, what I believe is pronounced Glaucus or Glaucus, but uh, apparently not. Uh, he he's going to send us some audio feedback eventually. That's going to uh, illuminate how you pronounce his name, or illustrate how he pronounces his name. But we'll just call him G Man for now. Um, a uh, let's see. He writes this. Uh, cue the bad boys song. Okay, so let me find the bad boys song and play that. So he, G-Man, continues. Have you ever seen something like this happening? Could the man physically open the door if he knew how to, or can you lock it from the inside? And uh, he gives us a link to this article. Uh, this happened in Melbourne, Australia. Looks like um, a passenger was furious that uh, they wouldn't let him on the airplane. Apparently, he was a couple of hours late <laughs> to arri- arriving at the airport for his flight. And uh, let's see, in a video released by Nine News, the late passenger is seen attempting to wrench open the locked door of the Jetstar plane before resorting to kicking it with his foot. Um, the man's brazen attempt came after he reportedly became irate and physical with Jetstar staff when they told him he was hours late for an earlier flight. The plane the man attempted to access wasn't flying to the destination he yeah, wanted to go to. I thought that was to. a great bit. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, and then he did he do the dreadful thing of running out and trying to get in this airplane. He wasn't even going where he wanted to go. Uh, anyway. He's like, I don't care. I'll just go anywhere at this point. You're going to take me somewhere. I want to get out of here. Yes. <laughs> I don't like these people. <laughs> They're mean. It's reported the man had a cigarette inside the airport before storming a nearby gate, pushing the crew out of the way, and then running onto the tarmac. <laughs> when the man was halfway up the steps, he was grabbed by staff, but managed to break free and get to the door of the plane. It took a number of baggage handlers to restrain the man, and two Jetstar employees were left with physical injuries from trying to restrain him. A Jetstar spokesman said the man's behavior was unacceptable, and the company <laughs> has banned him from traveling. Stronger than that. Yeah, that's kind of mild. <laughs> We frown, on this. we frown on this gentleman's behavior. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So um, uh, so his question, um, you know, can, could he actually open the door? And yeah. If, if the airplane's on the ground and the, uh, the cabin's not pressurized, um, you can, you, he could have certainly opened that door. Uh, there's no way to, I mean, as far as I know, there's no way to lock it from the inside. You can only hang on to the door and try to keep somebody from the outside from, you know, using leverage to open it up. But, um, yeah. yeah, if you think about it, uh, if the safety uh, services want to get onto the aircraft uh, in an emergency, there's no way it should be able to be locked from the inside. They should always be able to gain access. Uh, um, the good thing is that if you open uh, the aircraft door from the outside, if the crew on the inside have armed the slides so that uh, that means that if you do open the door, normally the slides will deploy. 
If you uh, open the door from the outside, that should automatically disarm the slides. Otherwise, should the gentleman should. should. <laughs> Otherwise, the gentleman would be met with an extremely large inflating trunk <laughs> coming out of the elephant of the aircraft. So, uh, yeah, he would have had a big shock and could have been severely injured. I'm not sure about the 737, but if it was a mad dog and the flight attendants had already armed the doors, uh, opening it from the outside would uh, would activate would it? the... Uh, oh, right. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm just going from uh, the, you know... Airbus. Your, yeah. I'm your modern Modern Airbus airplanes, yes, which don't allow that sort of thing. There, and that's a good thing. There is one exception on our airplane, of course, though. And the tail. That is the tail cone. Oh, yeah, but he's not going to be he might going try, up the tail cone. Might try to drop the air stairs if he knew where the switch was. <laughs> I don't think these people are that smart. No, right? I'm only. <laughs> this was not planned. In I'm only. I'm only was, playing with you, Jeff. Come on. It's just anger okay. fueled. I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah. The guy wasn't even, I mean, the airplane wasn't even going to where he was trying to go. Come on. <laughs> but good point. Uh, there are some exceptions. Dana knows for some reason, knows this airplane really well, especially very, very lately. I'm sure you knew it all, you know, way before I now. But uh, no, nothing. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> uh, number three. We'll end with that. Um, John, question for Captain Nick. Whoa. Hello, APG. I've been listening to you for a year, so I thought I'd leave my first feedback. Yeah, you got to listen for a year before you can send in your first. No, that's not a rule. I have an airband radio that my dad gave to me when I was seven, about seven years old. I'm now 27 and it's still working. So I was listening to an uh, Heathrow approach frequency the other day and noticed two distinct controller voices on the same frequency alternating between each other speaking to the traffic. I've never heard two voices on one frequency before. Can Captain Nick maybe shed any light on this? Do you want me to? <laughs> I want you to. Oh, yes, yes I'll let, let's do that. Um, I've heard it quite a lot, actually. But then again, I go in there quite often. Uh, but I thought I'd uh, approach the Oracle, uh, who, uh, whose name is Adam. And uh, the Oracle advised me that uh, when it gets busy, sometimes Heathrow Approach have two controllers on the same frequency. One will be controlling the aircraft in the stack, and one will be controlling the aircraft at the base of the stack, and will work them until late downwind. It requires very close teamwork and an almost telepathic understanding between the two controllers as when each is going to speak on the RT, though hand signals help. Uh, he quotes a, uh, a little a piece from uh, the great um, aviation uh, website, P. Prune, and I can recommend that. There's an awful lot of uh, uh, very professional people uh, who uh, are there and uh, provide a lot of information, which uh, says uh, gives a couple of frequencies. Um, uh, 119.72 is the intermediate director on the northern side, and there's another on the southern side of uh, 134.197. The northern intermediate director, being the busier, is deemed the master director. And in theory, he or she plans and communicates the landing order uh, to uh, the south. Once the arrival delay has got more than about 10 minutes, they offload this work to a support controller. This controller takes all the non-radar phone work and the initial calls of stack arrivals. 
this leaves uh, the intermediate north to get on with the primary task of radar direction. So basically, yeah, they uh, to ease the workload, you can and frequently do have two uh, controllers on the same frequency. Uh, and it sounds like it's um, not a particularly easy thing because you don't want to tread on each other. Um, Adam adds, now that uh, Heathrow radar has converted to electronic strips about a month ago, I expect the phone calls to be reduced, so there may not actually be a requirement for this procedure any anymore. But he's not sure. So if you have heard it, uh, you know, it may not happen so much in the future. Very good. Thank you for doing the research on that. Well, thank you to Adam for replying to my question. Much appreciated. Yeah, I'm surprised he's even talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know what that means. Uh, anything else to add? So no, interesting stuff. I appreciate Adam's insight on that. Thank you, Adam. And John, thanks for your question. I, I would imagine a lot of people who don't do this for a living uh, might wonder the same thing. All right, number four. Bo from Denmark, Dr. Bo Abrahamson, sent in some feedback, and he actually sent us audio feedback. We love that. Thank you, Bo, for taking the time to do that. So let's take a listen. Hello, APG crew. This is Dr. Bo Abrahamson in Denmark. Um, I recently stumbled across a, a YouTube video from, uh, from the University of London, Sweden, about their crash investigations. I think that came out about a year ago. Um, I know you have some experience in uh, air crash investigation, certainly uh, a couple of you do. And um, I also know you're keen not to speculate about causes. On the other hand, I think possibly this video takes it a little bit uh, too far in suggesting that um, counterfactual reasoning, uh, normative language and mechanistic reasoning might be traps um, that um, could be a problem when doing air crash investigations. So I appreciate uh, your thoughts on this. Uh, personally, I think it'll be very hard to, uh, to suggest any improvements to practices and systems without thinking about what could have been done differently and what the outcome might have been. Um, but, but certainly, um, I, if you could speculate about whether these are traps or whether these are actually the appropriate way for aircraft investigations to take place, I'd be grateful. Thank you very much and thanks for the great show. Thank you, Bo. Uh, thanks for sending in the feedback. And also thank you for being part of our coffee fund, Cadre. Um, so I watched this video and it's from a university in Sweden, Lund, I think, um, university. And this is a professor that is talking about and they use the, uh, the report of the Asiana San Francisco accident as an example, the, the final report by the National Transportation Safety Board, and they're looking at their analysis and their findings, and they're they're using terms uh, these three traps like a mechanist mechanistic um, something or other. Um, I forgot all the three traps that they talk about here. Um, I did attend the um, University of Southern California Flight Safety Institute uh, School for Accident Investigation and Running Safety Programs uh, when I was in the Air Force. And they didn't talk about any of this kind of stuff uh, during my training, analytical traps and accident investigation. So I was kind of surprised. And then I was watching some of the examples. I took three of the 21 or so um, uh, 
common or probable causes for this accident uh, as examples. And they're you know, like taking apart, breaking apart the words that, that are using, the phrases they're using in the, in the uh, accident um, investigation. And I honestly, I, I didn't really see any, any issues with any of it. And um, I guess it's just maybe because I've not been schooled in this whole theory of uh, traps uh, in an accident investigation. So are they just talking about, I didn't watch it. I'm sorry, but did they, were they just talking about like human factors, things that can lead to, you know, just patterns of thinking? No, that's not what they're. they're no, it's about. well, I mean, I guess there's a human factor in there, but what they were, what they were criticizing was the accident investigators verbiage, um, in their, in their accident report, talking about, uh, the way they phrase things and, um, the, these traps that was, you can fall I was in. Kind of trying to think if I could think of anything similar. Like in in medicine, we are taught things like transference and countertransference. So where you have a patient with you and you're either projecting onto them things that you want to be true about them, or you're receiving. E- e- there's different ways of interacting with people, and mm-hmm. um, I'm just wondering if that's what they're getting at, where it's like traps of thinking because we're conditioned to think in certain ways. That's how we decide that that's how the accident must have happened and you find things to put in the the correct places to put to make the puzzle pieces work that's not what they're talking about well let me let me play a little bit of this uh from the intro maybe that'll help uh with with this and of course you know the the link to this will be in the show notes but um i guess it's because everything's human factors right The, the the people that were involved in this flight and this accident and also the people investigating it and they probably have some preconceived ideas of what normal should be. And, um, anyways, let me see if this might help straighten some things out. I'll play a little bit of this. When Asiana Airlines Flight 214 crashed on the runway of San Francisco Airport on July 6, 2013, it was up to the National Transportation Safety Board of the U.S. to investigate the causes of the accident And in their report, they focused heavily on human performance on part of the pilots. They ended their report with 30 conclusions about why the crash had happened. And drawing on the Rasmussen School of Safety thought, I will highlight some of these conclusions and present three common traps in accident investigation. The first trap we're going to have a look at is counterfactual reasoning. Counterfactual reasoning is when the investigator is discussing a case that actually never happened, like a parallel universe, if you like. Let's have a look at the report. Crew members became aware of the low airspeed and low path condition, but the flight crew did not initiate a go-around until the airplane was below 100 feet, at which point the airplane did not have the performance capability to accomplish a go-around. Quotes like, did not initiate and did not have, are clear indications that the investigators have fallen into the counterfactual trap. That's kind of what this video is. It's kind of going through and looking at these uh, paragraphs and the, the words that they use to describe, you know, what they think went wrong and that sort of thing. And uh, maybe it's just all about my... Well, I don't know, Jeff, but I'm used to le- reading these reports, and that is uh, a very accurate description uh, to me of the performance of the aircraft, the situation the crew got themselves, and what occurred when an aircraft no longer has the performance to go around you need to clearly state that because it's obvious then that you know um 
an accident was inevitable, for example. Um, so I, I, this gentleman is going to have to, uh, you know, explain to me exactly what's wrong with that because I don't see a problem with it. Yeah, and that was kind of the way I felt throughout this seven-minute, 36-second video. I was like, well, I'm glad that nobody ever you – know, well, I'm glad, number one, I never had to do an accident investigation and prepare a report like this. But I'm glad that if I had, that nobody – well, I'd hope that nobody would go through and, and uh, you know, pick it apart. Oh, like, I, uh, I've had to do a report doing. like this, and uh, my air officer commanding picked it apart. <laughs> He said, the only reason I'm not making you rewrite this is because you're leaving the Air Force. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, nice. Well, that was a bit rude. Cheers. I, I agree with you guys. I don't know how else you would rewrite that without making it just sound very strange and unrelatable. Well, for, from our point of view, that the, it's language we understand, written in a way yes. we understand, and it's written for pilots. So it yes. makes perfect sense to me. I don't understand why... I should adjust my language and my understanding of phrases, and so should the uh, accident reporters to fit in with um, a problem that someone else outside the industry sees. Uh, perhaps I'm making a big mistake there. I don't know. No, I agree completely. Um, our, you know, the the pilot brain is probably different than an academic professor PhD guy um, that is is looking at language maybe a little bit more critically than we do and for us it's communicating what happened what went wrong what could have gone right that kind of thing and what we can take away from it and i i every example they used in this video was like well i didn't really see anything wrong at all with what they wrote i understand what they were trying to say so i don't know that's what we think about it <laughs> bo uh, Bo is a smart man. He's probably uh, well. He's a medical doctor and probably a, a doctor of philosophy as well. So, perhaps yeah, in in your stratosphere, yeah, it makes more sense. But to me, it was like, um, hmm, what's the point here? Well, I think it's more written in layman terms, anyways. I mean, it's not written by an English professor or a philosopher. It's written mm -hmm. so that the general public, including morons like myself, can understand it. So that's yeah. that's really all I have to say on it. Not that I'm a moron. I'm just saying morons no, like me. You're not a moron. No. Yeah. Buffoon, flying buffoon. I prefer that. Okay. Well, we'll go that. You're far. Not, yes. not a moron, Forrest. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's all I guess. You know, oh, the, I'm Mike? not a smart man. <laughs> hey, I'm really not a smart man. <laughs> Life's like it, a uh, box of chocolates. Just don't know what you're ever gonna get. Uh, let's see. Stupid is, stupid does, sir. I know I have that. I am, a, I am not a smart man, but I just can't find it because I'm not a smart man. <laughs> I'm just not a smart man. I'm just, yeah. I'm not a smart man. Anyway, moving on. Thank you, Bo, for uh, taking the time again to uh, to record the uh, audio. And I, I, that's how we feel about it. Maybe, maybe there's more to it. Uh, I would be interested to hear what you think, Bo. Yeah. Send us some more audio feedback and let us know what you think. All right. Liz, our wonderful producer, sent this piece of feedback in because we had been talking about uh, flight sharing um, programs. And uh, this article from uh, 
doesn't say. Anyway, from this publication says, ever since flight sharing app FlightNow was closed by the U.S. FAA, legal appeals failed when the Supreme Court refused to address the case in January 2017. The continuation of flight sharing apps and sites in Europe has been controversial. Leading the way has been Wingly, which has fought its corner with remarkable success as regulators have interpreted the EASA legislation that allows flight sharing in Europe. Uh, some of the uh, some in the business aviation sector have been vocal about their concerns, including Private Fly co-founder and CEO Adam Twiddle, and Biggin Hill Airport's Robert Walters. Safety oversight, pilot experience, and similarity to charter were central to these concerns. Pilots advertising flights is permitted according to EASA and UKCAA interpretations, and this was later also supported by France's DGAC, which initially put barriers in the way of online advertising of flights. So anyway, this article talks about what we've been talking about here uh, in our country and the fact that the latest uh, FAA reauthorization bill, which I think is still... Uh, between had passed the House and has not yet been passed by the Senate, includes some uh, some some language regarding allowing this kind of thing um, here in the U.S. And so we've we've been talking about that. So uh, it's an interest interesting article. Uh, apparently, there are some people that see are concerned about it over there in the U.K. and Europe. Captain Nick, what do you think? Yeah, um, I don't think very much about this, other than to say that um, uh, if you listen to the last show, uh, you'll have received quite a few opinion, opinions from us about uh, um, how we are concerned that if um, private pilots start using systems like this to generate um, a constant feed of passengers, um, and they're doing it uh, effectively to uh, subsidize their training, then uh, it rather undermines the concept of you have to get sufficient experience uh, before you are considered safe enough to uh, warrant a commercial license and um, fly with passengers. Now, a private pilot can fly with passengers, and they're allowed to contribute towards the cost of the flight, but when you turn it into a commercial enterprise in order to get enough money to generate flying hours, it kind of becomes a self-defeating um, argument in that uh, you are trying to do something that uh, gets you to the point where you can do it legally. And I'm not saying this is illegal. What I'm saying is the whole point of getting hours is to generate experience so that you are then capable, experienced enough to take fair-paying passengers. And it's a very, very small uh, difference between someone who's contributing slightly less than the cost of the flight or slightly less than the contribution the pilot's putting in uh, to a flight compared with a passenger who's just paying uh, um, to sit on an aircraft uh, and, you know, um, fly from A to B uh, just as he would on EasyJet. I mean, he, you know, uh, I, there, there is such a small difference. I, I, I just don't feel comfortable with the whole concept. Uh, the Baltic Air Charter Association, the BACA chairman, Richard Mumford, says that uh, there is a reason why there is a distinction between commercial and private flying and why commercial is subject to more rules and have airline operating certificates. He said, I understand the exception whereby if a pilot's taking some money for fuel, it's not commercial, but advertising a flight is different. 
And he says, I don't believe that the traveling public understands the distinction. I'm not saying that pilots that share for money are bad pilots or that they maintain their aircraft badly, but there's a reason why our operators go through what they do. He said that uh, BACA members have found it hard to get regulatory engagement on the issue. He did not comment on websites inviting people to request flights, as Wingley also does. So, you know, I, um, yeah, I think we've kind of, I don't know, Steph, what, uh, have you changed your view on this or do you still feel like um, this is something that maybe? I haven't changed my view on it. I don't think it's a good idea. Bottom line. What do you think, Dana? Dana is usually the one that comes in with a alternative point of view. Well, Are you all for this? No, actually, I agree with the entire panel. I think it's a terrible idea. So yeah. I'm I'm not coming with the alternative alternative view this time. I think it's and okay. I'll say idea. this as someone who uses you know Uber and um, Lyft services, um, and I you know theoretically maybe there shouldn't really be a distinction there. Um, but it just doesn't sit the same way with me. I think there's a lot more that goes into it. You know, there's a lot more liabilities. So between like driving, driving a, vehicle a vehicle on and the ground and flying aircraft in yeah. the air, uh, they're two different beasts. I yeah, mean, they're, just, they're not the same thing at all. I mean, I can see why people, close. I can see why the general public thinks of it being the same way, but it's, it's definitely not. And that's one of the dangers. I don't think the general public understands the nuance between uh, a, a pilot and a commercial pilot and an air transport pilot. We do because we're in the industry and we know how hard it is to get from one step to the next. But someone who's just pitching up and wants to go from A to B, they're not going to investigate that and they're not really going to understand what situation they're putting themselves in. Well, let's face it, we're not the Jetsons. I mean, everybody wants to think of us as the Jetsons, but it can't be that oh, way. Yeah. I, I'm a Jetson. <laughs> yeah, well, you see, I've got a, I've got a robot housekeeper. Do you? Yeah. You do. Actually, you have a, a robot uh, lawnmower. That's right. I use my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Oh, it doesn't take very long for it to mow you on, so it doesn't matter. That's true. Uh, and anyone who's thinking coming around and stealing my robot lawn. Mm-hmm. Why are there four of <laughs> him? I just saw four of Nick. <laughs> I, it's rather That's cool. crazy. It's my my I, three if you, brothers. If you list, there it is, four. <laughs> wow. The, the if, already if, you're guys, if you're listening them. to this show, Nick has a screen behind him. <laughs> and there are four. <laughs> That's just overwhelming. That's way too much Airbus talk. Way too much of us talk. <laughs> I'm just We're in formation with myself. Yes. Oh, sorry, I'm like it. a Chinook pilot. I can formate on myself. <laughs> yeah. It is There's so many places that go that. This is a family show. <laughs> There's so many places. Wow. Yeah, let's not. No. You know, no, this might show. be a good time for us to uh, kind of take a break and uh, listen to the eloquence of the old pilot as he spins his tail the plain tale, Bricksmas. The old pilot's plain tales, Bricksmas. During the Cold War, suspicion was rife, and any knowledge of the other side's capabilities and equipment was absolutely essential. 
This produced the need for specialist spy planes whose job it was to overfly military assets and photograph them for the intelligence boffins to pore over. The pinnacle of these aircraft was probably the SR-71 Blackbird and the U-2 Dragon Lady. whose performance gave them the edge. These stunning aircraft that could reach incredible speeds or unimaginable altitudes were cloaked in secrecy and wrapped in intrigue, enough to spark the interest of anyone who lived through the period and many in the years after. The Soviets too had their specialist aircraft, such as the Tupolev Tu-95MR Bear, the Tu-16R Badger, and the Mayasischev M-17 Mystic. However, the British also had a very special secret spy plane that it used under the strange circumstances that surrounded the agreements drawn up between the Axis forces regarding access to Berlin. With Russia's increasing hostility to the Western zones, the need to organize some mechanism for liaison between the Western and Soviet governments, who had quite recently been allies, had become apparent. In order to continue the flow of seemingly friendly relations between the zones, the British began negotiating with the Soviets, and it was eventually agreed that an exchange of mission groups to patrol the opposing side's zones would be organised. The resulting Robertson-Malinin Agreement came into effect on the 16th of September 1946. The agreement allowed for a small British liaison group named Bricksmiths, short for British Commanders-in-Chief Mission, to move about the Soviet zone of Germany, later known as the German Democratic Republic. The Bricksmiths group soon began to take advantage of the freedom of movement permitted under the Robertson-Malinning Agreement, whilst operating in the eastern zone. They set up a headquarters in Potsdam, on the western side of Berlin, and from there they would cross the Glienicke Bridge, the Bridge of Spies, famously used for the exchange of Rudolf Abel, the Soviet spy, for Gary Powers, the U-2 spy plane pilot, who had been shot down flying over Russia. The British Brexmiss troops, dressed in uniform, would drive out across East Germany, hunting out places to observe the Soviet forces and obtain what intelligence they could. Living in their vehicles or camping out, they would set up OPs, observation points, whilst photographing any Soviet military equipment that looked interesting. Berlin lay around a 100 miles inside the Soviet zone of occupation, so any military forces that approached the border would probably have been spotted by these roving observers well before they reached West Germany. As such, they helped to keep the status quo. These tours, as they were referred to, weren't without their dangers. Although protected by the Robertson-Malinin Agreement, not all the soldiers or Stasi, 
the East German State Security Service, were happy seeing the British military poking around and clashes were common. It was quite a regular occurrence for Brexmith vehicles to be rammed and shot at, particularly if they strayed into restricted areas and started photographing with their long lenses. What the Brexmith chaps needed was that very special spy plane to peek into areas that the chaps on the ground had trouble getting near to. Of all the aircraft that conducted clandestine spy missions throughout the Cold War, the Brexmiss aircraft was by far the most unlikely. It was the humble de Havilland Chipmunk T-10. For those who may not be familiar, the Chipmunk, or more affectionately named the Chippy, started life in Canada as a replacement for the Tiger Moth biplane. Made by de Havilland Canada soon after the end of the Second World War, it's a very simple ab initio basic trainer. It was made in Toronto, but around a thousand were also produced under licence in the UK by the British manufacturer de Havilland. The Chippy is a two-seat tandem aircraft with a low wing, fixed undercarriage and a tailwheel. Of mainly metal construction, it's aerobatic, has hand-operated flaps and is powered by an inverted Gypsy Major 8 a four-cylinder inline engine. It can reach a maximum speed of around 120 knots and a little over 15,000 feet in altitude, but is more likely to be found at a few thousand feet, puttering along at 90 knots, its cruise speed. Apart from being used as a trainer, it's popular as a tow aircraft for gliders, and some were even converted for crop spraying. So, one wonders, why on earth was it considered suitable for specialist clandestine operations? The Berlin Control Zone was established by the four occupying powers at the end of the war. The BCZ was a transit area for aircraft flying through the three Berlin air corridors, A to the north, B in the centre, and C to the south, which linked West Berlin to the so-called free world. Around Berlin itself was a circular area with a radius of around 20 miles and a ceiling of about 10,000 feet. Aircraft from the west could use these corridors to gain access to Berlin and the surrounding areas. Inconspicuous and unthreatening, the Chippies flew out of RAF Gatow in Berlin, a little to the north of Potsdam and their cover story was that the aircraft were used purely for the training of pilots on the station. However, in reality, for at least 10 days of every month, the aircraft flew missions exclusively for Bricksmiths. Of course, it would have been possible for every flight to have been a reconnaissance trip, but it was common for there to be watchers around the airfield, and on occasions the little chippy was intercepted by Soviet Mi-24 Hind attack helicopters. 
had one been forced to land in East Germany and their photographic equipment found, the game would have been up. So those involved took it all very seriously, particularly since the whole thing was classified top secret and there was a great deal of effort put into concealing the purpose of the flights. When a Bricksmith flight was undertaken, an ordinary staff car brought the personnel to Gatow, and they didn't wear their usual identification flashes on their uniform. The camera equipment was hidden, and the aircraft manned while it was still in the hangar to avoid prying eyes. The pilot occupied the rear seat, whilst the photographer sat in the front, usually with a pair of handheld cameras. One was equipped with a medium focal length lens and the other a long lens, such as a 500 or 1000 millimeter lens for close-up work. I speak from experience when I say just how cramped it must have been to cope with two cameras within the confines of that small cockpit. But despite the lack of space and the vibration, the crews did a marvellous job. Another difficulty came with the bitter German winters when, despite wearing several layers of cold-weather flying gear, the low temperatures made frostbite a real possibility. The Soviet forces, on occasion, took exception to being overflown and fired at the little chipmunk. Fortunately, none were brought down, but on at least two occasions, bullet holes were discovered in the aircraft's spinner, and on one of these events, whilst photographing a Soviet BMP armoured personnel carrier, a soldier can actually be seen in a picture firing at the aircraft, something that would have undoubtedly sent shivers down the back when the film was developed. Of course, flying a single-engined aircraft far over East Germany had its risks, and had the trusty Gypsy Major ever let them down, during a forced landing, the crew were briefed to pack everything, cameras, notebooks, exposed film and the like, into a special green bag they carried and drop it into a lake. If no suitable body of water magically appeared, then, after landing, they were to open the fuel tank drain cocks under the wings and set the aircraft on fire using the survival mini-flares they carried. Despite their best efforts, navigation, just using map and compass, wasn't always accurate, and on occasions the crews did get a bit lost, but there were rarely complaints which perhaps gave credence to the thought that nobody would be stupid enough to use a chippy as a spy plane. However, on one occasion, during a foray near a sensitive installation by Kegel, two attack helicopters attempted to force a Brexmess mission down, and the aircraft only escaped by flying between the approaching hinds on a knife edge. The Soviets had a reputation for buzzing Western aircraft that were using the corridors, and in one case, a Soviet Yak-3 fighter collided with a British European Airways Vickers Viking. 
During the preceding days before the incident, both British and American aircraft had been subject to close passes by Soviet military airplanes, but on this day, the Russian pilot was approaching the Viking from behind. The BEA pilot was in a left turn just prior to starting its approach to Gatow when the Yak-3 dived beneath it and pulled up, clipping the Viking's left wing and tearing it off. The crippled airliner spiralled down, crashing into the Soviet sector, whilst the Yak crashed near a farmhouse in the British sector. All occupants of both aircraft were killed on impact. Both sides blamed the other for the accident, and there were even arguments over allowing access to the two crash sites. Allied investigators later concluded that the collision was caused by the action of the Yak fighter, which was in disregard of the accepted rules of flying. A British-Soviet Commission of Inquiry was set up, but the Soviet representative, Major General Alexandrov, refused to hear evidence from German or American witnesses, claiming that only British and Soviet evidence was relevant, and in any case... Germans were unreliable. So, despite the slightly ridiculous situation of flying operational missions in a little two-seat, single-engine, completely unmodified, prop-driven trainer, the Bricksmith spy missions were undertaken with deadly seriousness, particularly since a navigational error might result in them being shot down. Since many of the intelligence targets were some distance from Gatow and well to the east of East Berlin, the Soviets were not at all happy with these aircraft flying overhead. One of the reasons being that the British were not the only Allied power collecting intelligence from the air. Both the French from Tegel and the Americans from Tempelhof were also flying in the BCZ, but Bricksmith was the only Allied mission that actually had complete control of its own operation, carrying out both the flying and the photography. In the strict terms of the agreement between the forces involved, flights in these areas were only supposed to be for the reinforcement of the garrison and had to originate in West Germany. If flights did not meet this safety requirement, the Soviet controllers in the Combined Control Center felt obliged to stamp the flight request card Safety of Flight Not Guaranteed. I wonder if the airlines flying into Berlin bothered to advise their passengers of this caveat since they had originated in the UK and came under the same threat. The results of these clandestine missions were well worth the efforts. Indeed, they were a hugely valuable source of intelligence at very little cost to the taxpayer. Installations that lay within the scope of the sorties included several major Soviet divisional headquarters, a number of ground ranges, a Soviet reconnaissance base equipped with MiG-25 Foxbat aircraft, two helicopter bases and many other important but less prestigious targets. Squadron leader Roy Marsden, who took part in many of these flights, tells us that 
A normal sortie would start in the local Potsdam area to the west of West Berlin, where there were three major Soviet divisions, the 10th Guards Tank Division, the 35th Motor Rifle Division, and an important frontal asset, the 34th Artillery Division, where they had the disturbing habit of training their guns on the aircraft as we flew around the installation. We would then progress to the rail sidings that served these units and finally fly to their associated training areas. New equipment was discovered, such as the presence of vehicles with anti-infrared detection paint, surface-to-air missile sites, large-scale deployments of vehicles with bridging equipment and the like. The intelligence that these missions discovered helped enormously in building the overall intelligence picture, and over the 35 years that Bricksmith's flights were undertaken, they produced a vast wealth of intelligence material that could not have been obtained in any other way. The British government supported the operation for many years, unbeknown to the British public, despite the fact that they knew that any serious incident could have proved politically damaging both domestically and internationally. However, in 1990, following the reunification of Germany, the chipmunks were finally retired and Bricksmiths wound up. However, should you ever visit the Allied Museum at Clay Allee 135 in Berlin, you will find a humble little exhibit, which is the chipmunk Whiskey Gulf 466, flown specially over from RAF Larbrook to Tempelhof to take its place as, perhaps, the world's least impressive spy plane. Oh, come on. I don't think it was... The least, and well, maybe it was. <laughs> I've flowed it, Jeff. It is definitely. <laughs> I was going to say, do you have any of that in your uh, any time in that airplane in your logbook? Oh, I had plenty when I was an air cadet, and then, uh, but when I joined the Air Force, uh, we did a short uh, assessment course uh, based uh, uh, and flew the Chipmunk. Yeah, so yeah, I got a few times. Excellent. Um, what a great airplane! Well, yes, it was. Seriously. It was a great little trader. I mean, for what it was designed to do. Yeah. You know, it wasn't designed to be a spy plane for sure. But. No, it certainly wasn't. No. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, they, they it's very erratic. And uh, some super chipmunks were um, built, I think, well, I think they're basically modified chipmunks with bigger engines, and they performed very well. But uh, it was a good old workhorse of a train of the chipmunk. And uh, to teach pilots on, brilliant. I think there's nothing uh, uh, better than a tail dragger to uh, teach you um, handling skills, delicacy of uh, controlled movements, and all, a lot of the, yeah, exactly right. A lot of the various uh, pitfalls that can occur. Uh, I think it's a great way to start your flying career. Why are there four of them? Four of what? You. Uh, it's they're my <laughs> alter egos. My word. Dana, cut down on the uh, bourbon, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking water right now, actually, Sandy. Oh, okay. It's my water. He's water. getting DTs. 
I've only had one. <laughs> okay. Bur- I've only had one bourbon. I'm just trying to figure out why. We've only we only see one. We only see one Nick. Oh, so you're that's so what I'm saying. Full of <laughs> malarkey. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks again for the great work with the Plain Tales, Nick. Always uh, interesting. Thanks very and, much. Uh, uh, yeah, I love Great that. story. I like the beaver, too. Yeah, the we airplane. all do. Mm-hmm. Of course. I, I uh, like number six. the beaver that's not the airplane. The, the little animal that chews <laughs> trees. Oh, yeah. That uh, makes dams. Yes, that's the one. Big yeah, I like that one. Yeah. No, yes. Okay. Chipmunk. Um, uh, 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 Number six, Sean, pilot shortage. Where have all the CFIs gone? He says the pilot shortage is here and now so much that the airlines are poaching the CFIs, which begs the question, who will train pilots if the CFIs are all sucked up by the airlines? The answer, one word, robots. Yeah, it'll be computer-based training. I don't like that idea much at all. No. So the story starts off, airlines' insatiable demand for pilots threatens to sabotage flight school's ability to train new ones. Carriers are raising wages and hoarding every available pilot, including the instructors schools rely on to teach incoming students. And the article goes on to talk about the problem, the fact that many of these uh, certified flight instructors are now leaving because the whole point of them being CFIs for most of them anyway, is to get the, uh, the experience, the hours necessary to move on and get to the job that captains, Nick, Dana, and I, um, do. And, you know, I, I can hardly blame them, but I do see, I do sympathize with the flight schools and, and they're thinking, what are we going to do here? Well, hang on a minute. You they, they, the guys still and girls still require a thousand or fifteen hundred hours to yeah. move on. So you've got them for that length of time, which can be yep. not a very long period of time in some places. Sure, but I mean that's not at all. you know. In, in yeah. the Air Force, we used to take uh, uh, students who got to about halfway through their training, basically got their wings at the end of uh, the advanced jet training. And they would be creamed off and sent back to do a, a flying instructor's course. And creamed then served, off? Yeah, we call them creamers. They were like, the cream rises to the top of the milk. I don't know where you're going, Dana, but that's I'm where, well, where he's been all night is where he's that's going. That's where the phrase <laughs> came from. So the uh, Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family creamers show. were sent back into the training system to become instructors. So... They'd only got halfway through their training. They spent then spent three years as an instructor, and then they moved uh, on to where they wanted to go on the front line. Now I, I see this being as a, you know, a similar sort of thing. And uh, certainly these guys uh, that we had as uh, creamy instructors were great. They were very good. All right. So what I want to highlight is in this article that uh, Nick was. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong line. I was pointing the right one. Sean was very nice very nice to point out is that this actually was by a uh, instructor or the the head of the department at my formal former school Bridgewater um 18 years and that's kind of scary because 18 years 
and I don't even know the guy that's head of the department. So I've been gone that long. So, anyways, my my point is is uh, here here we go with the with with a, a very vicious cycle that we're in, and that is is that it's becoming more expensive to learn to fly because you haven't paid flight instructors more money. Uh, you, you're having to try to retrain it. Retrain retain, if I can say the word right, retain instructors, uh, but it's it's impossible to retain them because when you're comparing the long-term, and that's what they go on to talk about in this in the article, is if you, if you compare it to what the benefits and rewards are for long-term uh, rewards in the airline business as a professional pilot, uh, you, you can't compare, you know, the, the flight school is charging 60, 70, 80 hours an hour for flight instructor, and the flight instructor gets 25, 30, maybe even $40 an hour now, uh, depending on bonuses and so forth and so on. So, you know, the the, the big problem is you can't, it, it, it's filling those spots. Once these people are gone, they're, they're vacating so quickly because the rewards at the end of the rainbow are so great that it doesn't pay to stay. Now, um, I know a guy named Kerwin here in Atlanta that's been a uh, flight instructor forever. As a matter of fact, he checked me out, and I see him at the gym all the time. And he's still a professional instructor. So there are, there are professional instructors out there. The problem is, is that they can't handle the load of, of the people that are coming through now. So what do you do? Um, I, I don't know that there's a really good answer for this because the airlines, and, and when I say airlines, I mean the regionals, the um, the folks that are flying corporate, the folks that are you know flying banner towing, all all of those jobs. And oh, by the way, the best way, one of the the biggest ways that we used to in the old days build time as a civilian guy or girl for that matter, uh, is that we used to build time flying either checks night cargo, banners, uh, flight instructing, of course, which we're talking about. Uh, a lot of those are drying up. Like checks are, are almost non-existent now. They almost don't fly night checks anymore. John was a perfect example that last uh, last uh, time when, when John was here. That's what he did. That's what he was doing at night was flying the uh, the night checks. So that doesn't exist anymore. So building that thousand hours, there's only really one very good way to do it. And that's flight instructing. But why even mentioned Kerwin is that the quality instruction that you're going to get from somebody like him is unbelievable uh, versus somebody that's just looking to build time. So uh, if you're able to uh, get to that rank and, and build your time and get to a, a CFI level. Um, most of the people are just interested in moving on to the airline business. And I don't know, I don't know that there's an easy answer for this one. I, I really don't. I mean, I'm still a flight instructor. So if, if there was a non-compete or non-FAA requirement that I was not flying so many hours a month, could I fly part-time and be a, a part-time flight instructor? Certainly. Do I have the experience to do it? Absolutely. Am I going to do it? Not for the, the amount of money that they would pay me for the risk that I had to put to my career. Just the same reason why um, when it became uh, when it came time for me to think about becoming a scuba diver instructor, the liability, just the liability alone for me to you know make $120 per student just wouldn't pay off over my career if I got bent trying to chase a student that was going to the top of the you know the surface of the water, so it's the same type of scenario. I'm certainly not going to put my career at risk to to train new students coming through. Now, when I retire from being a pilot, 
or let me rephrase that. When I retire from being an airline pilot, could I possibly go back and become a flight instructor? I probably will because I'm going to keep my, my status up throughout my entire career. Didn't spend all that time, effort, and money to become a flight instructor and to let it just lapse. So, and then I can go ahead and just like on the show, share some of my experience and help the next generation. But it's going to be a while before I get there. And I don't know what the, the status will be once I get there in, in another 18 years. So, uh, you know, that's just my personal perspective. I don't know the answer to uh, the solution to the answer, uh, the answer to the solution, however you want me to say it. Um, it's a tough one um, because just people looking to move up in, in the supply of available pilots is becoming very rapidly depleted in the industry, period. And, uh, you know, a, a famous organization, international aviation organization, I'm not going to use their, uh, their letters, but they're uh, representative of a lot of airline pilots. They believe it's an, an issue of pay, and I, don't, I do not agree with them at all. I think it's an issue of the fact that people are just not available anymore, and uh, the, the supply lines are drying up. And if there's not a, a very uh, rapid solution um, that comes about, I think we're going to lose most of our flight instructors and thus we're not going to be able to train most of our student pilots that are coming through. And we were talking about earlier with the, uh, the folks that want to deport, you know, deport uh, uh, the uh, Chinese students. Well, where do you think most of the airlines in this world send their students to learn? The good old U.S. of A. Because it's the least expensive and it's the quickest and the best training in the world. So if we don't have flight instructors to train all these people, well, it's only going to propagate and make the uh, the training issue or the the supply issue. Let me rephrase that: supply issue for for new students and and and, and getting them to the level that we need them to be. Uh, it, it's only going to make it worse. So, okay, am I missing a trick here, Dana? Because I don't understand the problem. What I see is a demand for pilots. And once those guys have got through their initial training, they're going to need to work at a job uh, as a pilot for about 1,000 or 1,500 hours, okay? And the best job they can possibly get is being a flight instructor, which they will do. Now, what, it'll take them a year or two to, to work up those hours, um, well, and then if they're lucky, they'll move straight on. So the bigger the demand of pilots, the more of these people will be coming to the flight school saying, I want to learn to become a, a flying instructor so I can work for you, work up my hours, and then I'll move to the airlines. There's going to be a continuous flow. And the bigger demand there is in the airline, the more of these people are going to be coming to flight schools wanting to become instructors. Except that right now in this moment, there's not because of the associated costs with flight training. You know, Dana mentioned that it is comparatively inexpensive here to um, to get your flight training and go through your ratings, but it's still expensive. And I think that's seen by a lot of um, young folks who might otherwise want to get into this industry as a potential barrier. And I think that's something that stops as many people as used to do it from doing it now. So you have the demand, but you don't have the same supply as what you had maybe 20, 25 years ago. Well, we're talking about yeah. the cost here of becoming a flight instructor, are we? No, no we're just, just private pilot 
commercial pilot, commercial instrument rated pilot. But it, I mean, it's right. not like the kind of, the cost of doing an approved course, which is you know over a hundred thousand pounds, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, we're talking about we're talking about at any, um, kind of in any scenario or any flight school setup. So part sixty one, part um, one forty one, one forty one. Thank you. Um, I think across the board, you see those problems right now, at least here. Yeah, and in 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 part of part of the chokehold right now, Nick, and and if in Sean's article they put out there is that the director of aviation department over there at the bridgewater university which is uh, bridgewater state university what did they rename it? it used to be bridgewater state college bridgewater state university i think is what they call it. they're having to limit the amount of students that they can bring into the program because they just don't have the instructors to teach them so it's 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 a it's a vicious well, circle that we're, you, we're getting you, you into. You see my point. The more students they get through, the more inst potential instructors they have at the, at, the, at the end of their training. And, in fact, if the schools did a thing like the airlines do in cadetship and say, right, we will um, help pay for your training until you become a flight instructor, and then you'll be tied to us for three years, say, to pay back your training and earn your 1,500 hours, and then you can move on to the airlines. If Once you set that flow up, it'll become a self-perpetuating system. Yeah, but Dr. Steph hit it right on the head. The cost is astronomical. Well, the cost well, of everything is going to go yeah, up, obviously, is, but that cost is eventually going to be passed on to the airlines because yeah. they're the people who want these pilots. But the problem is right now those systems aren't generally in place. I think there are a few schools who have that type of setup where, I mean, it's, you know, earn your ratings here and we'll guarantee you a job as a flight instructor. But I don't think that always gets everyone all the way through their 1,500 hours. Um, and, you know, there's there's different types of flying that people can leave to go do besides flight instructing. So even though the vast majority do flight instructing, there's still, like Dana said, just at this moment in time, and perhaps it'll change with some of the stuff you're talking about, Nick, because I think that stuff will come into play if it gets to that point. Um, but right now there's this bottleneck. So well and, and not only that, you 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 hit the head on the, the, the you hit the nail on the head and that is is that the uh they're not only you know going to flight instructor, but there are other are other jobs. Like I've got my buddy who couldn't, you know, get into the airline business. Um well he was in the airline business, but to, to you know the opportunity just wasn't there for him to go for further in, into the majors uh, because he didn't have a college degree. So he's now flying as a uh, director of the corporate flying department, and they're bringing on guys that have commercial licenses, which is 250 hours. So they're starting to, the corporate world is starting to come after the low-time pilots because they don't, you know, they're part 91 or part 135. They're not required to have the 1,500 hours to get the ATP. So they are starting to take because they can't find qualified or higher end qualified pilots. So basically they're getting them in the seat, getting, you know, giving them a type ride and, you know, all they do is, you know, move the hand gear handle obviously and work the radios, but you know, until they build the experience, but still there are other avenues in which people are pursuing to, to build that time to get to the airline or the corporate world. And some of them, you know, leave the airline business to go to the corporate world. So, you know, the, the, it's, it's, it is a, in a perfect world, in an absolutely perfect world, you know, we would have no problem recruiting and putting uh, flight instructors into positions. Um, but that's really just not the case anymore. And there are a lot of people just don't don't even come down this 
this career path. And, you know, the Air Force is a perfect example. I mean, really, they have to go out and recruit people. I mean, it, it, it for, forever it used to be, okay, sign me up. That's the way I build my time. That's how I become a pilot. That's how I get to that proverbial, uh, you know, end of the, 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 the rainbow so I can get that airline job. I go fly in the Air Force for a couple of years. Four years used to be the commitment. Now it's 10 or more. I don't know what it is currently, but I know it's 10 or more uh, is your commitment. So, you know, getting to that avenue is 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 much more difficult. And it just seems as though this generation's just not wanting to step up and, and go into these roles. Well, the way I see it is that there is such a demand for air travel that there will be increases in pilot pay, remuneration, benefits, and it will filter down because you've got to have pilots. And if someone in the industry recognizes a bottleneck, they will just start throwing money at it because the airlines cannot afford not to have pilots because they're there to make money. And if they see an investment of several million into flying schools to generate their pilots, that's what will happen. Now, at the moment, we're suffering the classic lag in the system. You know, uh, it's a sinusoidal wave, the uh, pilot demand, pilot shortage things, and we're on an upslope, but it's going to take, it has inertia, it's going to take a while for the system to to get back to when it was when I was uh, just before I was looking for a, a job when there were lots of state-sponsored flying schools around and people could walk off the street and become an airline pilot just having passed an aptitude test and people paid for them to do all their training and will eventually end up there. But it's the lag in the system means in the meantime, there's going to be a bit of a shortage. Once that shortage is truly realized, then people will just start throwing money at. That's what I firmly believe. I don't actually think it will be a long-term problem. Well, and I agree with you 100% because if you take a look at a lot of the European airlines and a lot of the Asian airlines and even to a certain extent the Middle Eastern airlines, uh, you know, they're starting to send, and they have been, like Lufthansa I think is one of them, I know a couple of the Asian airlines send their students over here to the States and do a full ab initio program. In other words, they interview the pilot or the potential pilot and take them from zero to hero, right? Now the regional airlines here in the United States, from what I understand and what I've heard, are starting to do the same thing because, you know, the supply line is just not there. So they, they're having to do exactly what you're talking about. They're having to do the ab initio, interview somebody, have them sign a contract, and have them go all the way through from zero time right up to airline captain. So I, I, I see I see that there's hope here, and, and, and I, you know, I think we agree upon, upon the same uh, um, outcome. I'm just concerned about the lack of uh, availability of flight instructors, and I hope that can turn around. I really do. The bottom line is there's going to have to be a solution. I agree that the airlines are going to have to just suck it up, and they're just going to have to start subsidizing or outright paying for all of the training for all of the potential pilots to replace those of us who are flying now. And it could be uh, ab initio. It could be a combination of that and also bumping up pay and benefits for the CFIs out there going through the 
a more traditional, you know, part 61, part 141 schools, but uh, it's, it's all about the money and who's going to pay it. And I think the bottom line, and I think Nick, you touched on that. Uh, I think we all did. The airlines are going to have, because <laughs> bottom line is they need the pilots. They got to get them somehow. And they're going to do it by just paying for it uh, eventually. So, um, it, it, I mean, it is, you can see how difficult a solution it is. And you heard from all of us here uh, expressing our concern and our thoughts regarding this shortage. And uh, it, it's, it's not an easy, this is your solution right here. Just take this piece of paper and now you're all fixed. It's not going to happen like that. No, no and certainly with, yeah, absolutely. And certainly that's, you know, we can close the subject on that and just close it and leave it alone at this point because there's really nothing that you and I or Nick or any any of us on the panel is going to be able to do to solve it. It's just going to be an ongoing uh, crisis that uh, I think the airlines all need to address. So I agree with that. And the problem is, um, and going back to your statement about uh, the Airline Pilots Association and, and the fact that they kind of emphasize the the problem is not a lack of people to do this job is the fact that they uh, the pay is not where it should be and the benefits aren't and i think what the point they're trying to make is and i think that it's a synergistic thing that uh, the reason why we don't have one of the reasons a big reason why we don't have people out there with the qualifications to do this job or motivation to do it is because for so many years the airlines um deprecated our jobs, our pay, our benefits, and they got away with it for some time. But nobody could see into that crystal ball and see what the problem that they were creating was, uh, that here we are now, nobody has any interest in doing this job because I can do something else with my career and make more money. And, uh, and it may not be as cool a job as flying airplanes around, but heck, I'm going to have a nice living. I'm going to be able to support my family. I'm going to be home every night. You know, not everybody, but you know what I'm saying. Um, so why would I want to, you know, spend a lot of money, you know, risking the fact that I may not make it through, spend a lot of money on a job where, yeah, it's cool flying airplanes, but I'm away from my family a lot. And, uh, you know, there there's some things that, that we put up with because we love flying so much that uh, a lot of people are saying, eh, it's not worth it. Not in, And not until they start paying some good money and and good benefits for us to do this and i think that as uh, nick pointed out we're in that that lag period now where they're going hmm maybe we shot ourselves in the foot now we need to catch up and until they catch up we're going to be in this situation yep <laughs> uh, yeah i mean it, i mean it's very well said I, you really can't follow up on that other than that uh it, you know it's it's amazing to me. I, you know, I look at my younger brother, who's 18 years younger than me, that came out of college with a uh, a degree in a very specialized field, and I can't even begin to explain what it is. But he came out, you know, basically with a tech degree, and his his starting salary was five times what I was making as a first officer to regional. So yeah, I, you know, there's a there's a reason why people don't want to do it, and I and I agree with you, and not that they use their their name Alpa. Um, I, we can use their name. <laughs> it's a it's a uh, very large uh, union that represents a lot of pilots in the United States of America. Yep, including yeah. well, and some so, internationally too. So, but anyways, yeah. it, it 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 is a very contentious and very difficult uh, issue to tackle because 
there are no, I mean, and I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm one of those guys. I'm a mid career, midlife career changer. So I gave up and hung up everything I was doing to pay the money to go through flight school to finish what I had originally started, finally had the money. And, uh, you know, th the bottom line is, is that those type of people like me, they're not out there anymore because the money wasn't there for so long. So I agree with you on that. All right, Sean, thank you for sending that in. I really honestly didn't think that we were going to spend 25 minutes on <laughs> answering that question, but it was a good discussion. And I'm sure uh, we're going to be talking up. about it again ongoing because oh, this yeah. is just such a big problem these days or yeah. issue. Uh, absolutely, it is. And I'd hoped to cover some more, but it uh, looks like we've gotten to the point in the show now where we got to really cut it off. And so we're going to have to put aside uh, some of those that we were going to attempt to cover today. Uh, Nick has a question, uh, not not Captain Nick, another Nick, uh, about towing planes under the stand. Uh, Frick sends us an article about the uh, SA Express over there in South America that uh, have been grounded over safety concerns. Uh, a wonderful woman that uh, we'll definitely talk about on the next show uh, who spent uh, a huge amount of her years of her life uh, here on, uh, in this world working for a company that she loved, uh, Boeing. Uh, just died recently at 96. Great story that we want to uh, tell you about, and as well as more, uh, including George Nolly, who um, had uh, a thing or two to say about plane tails and uh, the the ready for takeoff. I mean, I'm sorry, the um, book uh, penned by Emilio Corsetti, uh, Scapegoat, which I did order and I've already received and I've started reading. So uh, we'll we'll talk about all that in the next show. But in the meantime. If you want to go and you just can't get enough and you're starting to get that syndrome, the APG syndrome, you can head over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website where you can find out how you can figure out how to hear some more episodes that we've done in the past. You can watch video, etc. We're on the YouTube channel, Airline Pilot Guy. We're on iTunes and a lot of the, all, all the places that you listen to podcasts. But more information again on that at the AirlinePilotGuy.com website. We have us smartphone tablet apps for ios and android again information about that you can be found in the show notes and also on the website we're also in the social media space and uh, dr steph's going to inform us about that indeed you can head over to twitter and use the handle at apg crew we're all there um, we can see your messages to us in 280 characters or less and all of our contact or our twitter information is pinned to the top of that page if you'd like to contact us individually or follow us individually as well you can also head over to facebook facebook.com slash airline pilot guy interact with the community there are lots of different articles sometimes information about meetups um, information from crew members so we hope to see you there and hillel is going to tell us about how you can join the slack team apg listeners please join us on our slack team slack is a communication coordination and sharing platform that works on your mobile laptop or browser on slack we share ideas and news we suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, 
and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, one one Echo one And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And um, on behalf of the APG crew, who includes our producer, Liz Piper. Thank you very much, Liz, for all of your work behind the scenes. Uh, we just want to tell you that uh, we really appreciate you uh, subscribing and downloading the podcast, uh, hanging out in the chat room for our live shows on YouTube, etc. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Here's y'all. Bye, everybody. Hasta la vista. Good day.